Now you kids are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably going to find out as you go out there that you're not going to amount to jack squat. You're going to end up eating a steady diet of government cheese and living in a van down by the river. Now, young man, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, actually, Matt, I kind of want to be a writer. Well, Lottie frickin' da! Do, do, do you remember, what, like, when you were young? Yes, yes, Seth, I do. And, and you remember when, you know, now, like, now that you're older, like, you look back at stuff that was really big, like, like movies and shows and stuff? Uh-huh, yeah, I, I remember that. And, like, do you remember how you and your friends see how it holds up now? Yes, yes, Seth. I think that we have a really different perspective on the pop culture of yesterday. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, Lottie freaking duh! It's When We Were Young, <laughs> the podcast that revisits the pop cultural monuments of our youth to see if they slowly crumbled into dust under the weathering of time, the empty black eyes of an indifferent god, and the universal, unstoppable, unceasing inevitability of decay. Or if maybe they're still pretty good. I'm Seth, the host most likely to wrap his most sensitive personal flaws in air quotes in the hopes I can outrun the pain of admitting them out loud on national television. I'm Chris, the host who could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Whatever that means. And I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host who's maybe not the norm. I'm not camera friendly. I don't wear clothes that fit me. I'm not a heartbreaker. I haven't had <laughs> sex with a woman. I don't know how that works. I don't fall in line. I'm not hygienic. I don't wipe properly. I lack style. I don't have self-esteem. I have no charisma. I don't own a toothbrush. <laughs> Well, that was a lot. That was a lot. But thank you for your candor. <laughs> On today's episode, we're talking about Chris Farley, one of the hottest stars to ever burst out into national fame from the TV sketch comedy institution known as Saturday Night Live. Farley took his superstardom to the cinema very soon after, in the mid-1990s, but his career was tragically cut short by his death in 1997 at the age of 33. So in his honor, get on your finest bow tie and black spandex pants and join us as we revisit the comedy career of Chris Farley, starting with his time on Saturday Night Live and then starring in the movies Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. Before we talk about Chris Farley's meteoric rise and our own histories experiencing Chris Farley's comedy, let's talk about our own pasts for a bit. My opening question is this. When did you first start seeking approval or attention from others? And have you gotten over the need to seek approval or attention from other people in your own life? 
Birth, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to get it out of the way. Same answers as Chris. (laughs) Birth and no. I mean, does anyone not seek approval from others? Even somebody? (laughs) Most people who would be considered normal don't have a need on a deep personal level to always, like, seek attention and approval from other people. Do you mean the general public or a specific person? Because I would think that everyone has a specific person, even if it's their parents or their, you know, loved one uh, that they need validation from. But then there's the the person who is generally every comedian, actor, you know, that that needs attention from the masses. (laughs) Well, and that in part is what I'm getting at with the question, because we three are seated recording what we're talking about, and it's going to go into a podcast that goes out into the world. So on some level, beyond just personally enjoying talking to each other and looking back at these things, I think there is an element of us that wants this to be heard by other people we don't know. Wait, people are listening to this? (laughs) I mean, the statistics tell us that at least some people who are not me pressing play on my browser window are actually (laughs) listening to this. I think for me, it really ebbs and flows in different parts of your life. And it depends on, I guess, who you're seeking approval from. Because obviously, when you're a kid, you have to have some approval from your parents because you have to do what they say. And if you don't, they will, like, not feed you or whatever. (laughs) They'll feed you. They'll take your toys away. I mean, I don't know what your home (laughs) life was like. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, like, you you have to do what they say, and they're the only person there. So you, you model your behavior on them to an extent. And also, just to jump in on that, I think even as kids, you recognize that your parents are responsible for taking care of you. So in a lot of cases, what they're telling you not to do is stuff that presumably could hurt you or kill you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is often for your own good in uh, (laughs) early years. And then in school, obviously, like that changes a lot. And so for me, I was, I feel like I have a really kind of unusual mix of wanting to be an extrovert and being an introvert and kind of always have. And, you know, some ways it comes out more on one side than the other. But, you know, like, I do kind of desperately seek attention. I don't know about approval, but, like, some kind of attention of just, like, being seen and recognized because I'm a naturally kind of a more quiet person. And I'm not a Chris Farley, for example, of someone who's (laughs) all eyes on them, like, when they're kind of walking in a room. And I'm much more likely to kind of be sitting and observing things and kind of choosing my moment to maybe say something rather than like kind of always on. And I also like grew up as a reader early on. I was spending a lot of time writing stories and that was a very solitary thing. And that's, you know, something that's carried out, you know, so I'm very good at being independent. But I also, because of that, I think can feel like overlooked easily and have it at times, like especially in like certain like years of school and everything, you know, like other people were more outgoing and had more friends or just more, you know, going on. And I, and I was usually okay, like to, to, you know, be studying and reading a book and whatever, but I still wanted, you know, to have fun, you know, like, you know, people do. And I wasn't always satisfied being by myself. So at times, you know, I would kind of like long for more attention. But then if, when I would get more attention, then I like recede because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't yes. deserve this or I, I don't want this. Like, I don't actually like it. So it's like I crave it. And then when I get it, I'm like, oh, no, not for me. No, thank you. 
that was pretty true throughout my like whole elementary high school back home. And then in college, I like kind of actively wanted to be more outgoing and tried to. And I think I was in a lot of ways. Like I, I kind of made myself do a lot of things like pledging a fraternity and just like being more social with people so that I wouldn't have that feeling that I had felt before where I just felt like too much of my life was me with my writing. And then after that, you know, I, I, I do feel like I've gone kind of back and forth in phases. And right now, like after the pandemic and working from home and stuff, like I am in more of a, a period of being kind of more independent and less, you know, out there all the time. And that can be good in ways, but I also am like, oh, I should actually get out more and, and do more too. So I feel like I'm maybe always going to have a little bit of a like push and pull with that. And, you know, you mentioned us doing the podcast and I think that's why this is a good medium because in one sense we are performing and being heard by people, but it's also only audio. So you don't have to worry too much about, you know, your appearance or what you're doing with your hands and, you know, like... Speak for yourself. I do full makeup before every episode. It is caked on. Seth is in full drag. (laughs) (laughs) Every episode. So I I think it is a really good way to kind of perform and be able to, like, we know that we can edit it, like, if, you know, we mess up, which we never do. But if we were to, you know, we have that option. Right. And so I think it suits me very well as like kind of a halfway point between doing something that feels like being an entertainer in ways or uh, getting your voice and your thoughts out there, but also not being like literally on stage belting a song or, (laughs) you know, acting a dramatic scene or something like that, which is something that I would have a lot harder time trying to do one based on my talents, but also based on just like how nervous I would be performing. I love that. And I really appreciate your candor and also the degree to which you really understand how kind of up and down it always has been. Yeah, like just to start with, I've always had that same pull between the pressure of wanting to be known and the horrifying experience and ordeal of being known. And yeah, I've had a lot of periods in my life, both when I was depressed or when I was not depressed necessarily, having that kind of bifurcated reaction and and having to try to like balance that somehow in my head and figure out what it is I really get out of it or want. I think I was definitely aware of my like need for attention from other people from a very young age. I was an only child, you know, so I think in a lot of ways I didn't really have to super compete for attention from my parents, but I certainly did. And I don't know about either of y'all, but like growing up with a narcissistic parent, I was taught from as soon as I could speak, basically, that I had to please my narcissistic parent and keep them happy at all times and do things to soothe and pacify and keep them happy and please them um, in order for them to not, you know, go through the reaction of a narcissist, which is to feel, you know, personally offended by someone else existing, Um You know, in part, that, like, drove why I was such a big nerd academically, you know, why I pushed so hard to get straight A's in school for as long as I could, um, was to get that kind of external validation and affirmation and approval. Um, But at the same time, like, what goes with that is very much a deficiency in self-esteem. And that's a thing I've also had kind of my whole life, you know, including now, and it's gone in waves up and down, you know, but... But it's a thing I've always wrestled with. And also, it's like I've always been kind of an indoor kid with more of a leaning toward um, introversion. 
Um, but I also like need connection with other people and need, you know, community like any human does. But like my batteries for that get filled up very quickly and my like social batteries get drained very, very, very fast. They have a very low capacity. You know, so I would say that I don't know if I've found a perfect happy medium. I have not achieved the nirvana level of no longer having any need for external validation or approval or any of that. There is that part of me. I've also always had theatrical inclinations as well. I would never try out for like the leading roles in school play because my anxiety would always kick in and my, of course, lack of self-esteem would be like, no, nah, there's no way. They wouldn't pick me ever. But I would try to sing out and I would get recognition for that. And I really enjoyed that from a young age. And that wasn't something that was tied to like winning a trophy or a ribbon or a, you know, certificate or whatever. It was just the joy of expression. And that's also a joy that I found in like playing music. You know, I found a lot of ways in my life to give me that feeling of kind of affirmation and the knowledge that you've made other people happy. Becky? thought I already answered. <laughs> Don't you want more attention? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> you've changed. <laughs> I'm too tired to care what other people think. I have two children at home. I care what they think. <laughs> well, I think that's that makes sense. Like, that's the phase of life that yeah. you're in. Like, yeah, but it literally makes perfect sense. I totally get it. They're who matter. Like, yeah. Yeah. If your daughter was, like, furious at you, you would care, you know? Like, yeah, and, and that, she is sometimes, oh, too. Like, and I'm definitely <laughs> bald when, like, yeah. I feel like I'm not a good mom. So, I don't know. At work recently, I've been getting good feedback, and that has helped lift me up at work. Like, yeah. like just my attitude and my overall happiness at work. And it made me realize, like, oh, I didn't really get a lot of good feedback <laughs> previous jobs, which I don't necessarily think that's like on my work, but just on I wasn't getting that feedback. And so now that I am like, it makes me want to do a better job and do more. So I think I, you know, still do care. Or at least when I do get that good feedback, I feel better about life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love both parts of that answer, both the like parenting aspect and the job aspect, because I've had job situations where, you know, I got a lot of positive affirmation, but like I was getting so cheaped out on my pay that it absolutely felt like nothing. And I wasn't able to actually enjoy that. You know, there are other people in circumstances where they really enjoy it and get paid a ton, but then don't get any kind of affirmation or approval. And that is really draining. The experience of of doing a job is kind of bipolar in a way too emotionally because you know you feel like it's the kind of thing where like oh it's just a job like it shouldn't affect me emotionally that much but then again it's the place where you're spending more of your time than almost any other place in your life mm -hmm. and putting more of your daily effort into that than you are able to put into almost anything else and of course like the structure of that is really alienating and you know draining for us in and of itself because it means that most of us don't have the time to you know build out our social lives in ways that we might want to. But yeah, I'm both happy for you that you have that experience in your current position. And yeah, thankful that you could like outline that in that element of your life. Yeah, I think it is interesting having this conversation. You're obviously chosen for this episode for a reason with Chris Farley, who is someone who like really sought a lot of attention and got a lot of attention. But as we're talking, like it just it it's a reminder that everyone needs to be kind of recognized and have, you know, some attention, like no matter how introverted you are or how isolated you can be, everyone needs a little bit of recognition and, and craves it. And I think it is kind of rare that we get it, you know, as, especially in a 
work context, but just, you know, it's not often that you have those moments where you're like, wow, I feel really like <laughs> seen and like valued for, you know, what I brought to whatever. Today's dinner or work today or hanging out with people, you know, it's just like you tend to just not express those things. But like we all do kind of have this like side of us that's, you know, just wanting to be validated because I think we often act more confident than we are and like would actually like to know for sure that like we can assume that people value us. We don't always know it like for sure. And so <laughs> and and we don't always express it because it just it feels kind of awkward and it's like kind of a socially weird thing to do. And also it's like I know I'm not necessarily just speaking for myself. But a lot of times you have expectations of what's going to feel like that good validation. And then when you get some other kind, you like automatically reject it out of hand because it's not what you expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you both for being so honest about that. I literally came up with it like a minute before you got here and wasn't sure if it might be too deep to ask about. But I think it was very interesting. Good question, Seth. Thanks. <laughs> My answer would have been a little different if my parents weren't listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Crosby Farley was born on February 15th, 1964, the third of five children of Tom and Marianne Farley. His upbringing in the 60s was an all-American childhood and adolescence in the upper-class Maple Village neighborhood of Madison, Wisconsin. Chris's brother Kevin describes Chris as the middle child and the black sheep of the family. There was a lot of competition from Chris trying to upstage all his other siblings to get attention and see, get attention from his parents and see who could make his family laugh the most. Are you sure he didn't describe him as the Beverly Hills ninja of the family? (laughs) (laughs) Not at the time. He's later become known as that. Chris got a lot of his sense of humor from his dad, who was a salesman and a very laid back comedy fan who loved to rile his kids up at home. Chris was a dedicated athlete becoming a lineman on the Crusaders football team at Edgewood High School. He quickly took his attention-grabbing sense of humor and his large physical frame and used them as a defense mechanism at school against all his anxieties, learning he could make his schoolmates laugh too. Chris's dad got one of the first VHS video cassette players, and so he'd tape the shows of his favorite comedians like Carol Burnett and Jackie Gleason off of TV. He'd quiz his siblings on movie lines. And he also went to a summer camp that ended with a play. Basically, he was exactly like me. (laughs) Versus little red boots. (laughs) Yeah, minus those (laughs) Superman boots. That's it. Chris Farley once recalled getting his first laugh outside of the house as a third grader in his hometown. A teacher leaned over his desk and Farley, quoting a popular shampoo commercial at the time, said, gee, your hair smells terrific. All the kids laughed hysterically, and it was like a revelation, Farley said. I was overweight my whole life, and making people laugh was a great defense mechanism. I made them laugh before they could call me fatso. He was also apparently later known for whipping out his dick at his Catholic school. (laughs) Both that exhibitionist streak and the devout Catholicism remained with Farley throughout the rest of his life. Two quotes describing this time and his religion. I can't help it. I want to be a good Catholic, but I'm a hedonist. And the other, I remember one time when all the nuns in my Catholic school got around in a semicircle, me and my mom in the middle, and they said, Mrs. Farley, the children at school are laughing at Christopher, not with him. (laughs) And I thought, who cares as long as they're laughing? Mm. Chris first started learning improv at the Arc Theater in Madison, but soon left and moved to Chicago because of the prominence of the improv comedy scene there. 
He first joined Improv Olympic, then Second City. At Second City, he was part of a touring company at first, but he was soon promoted to the main stage in 1989 and starred in three reviews, performing alongside Tim Meadows, Joe Murray, David Peskesi, and Bob Odenkirk. Farley studied under Del Close, considered the godfather of improv comedy, and a man who was famously not a fan of purely physical comedians. He loved Chris not primarily because of his physicality, but because of his genuine comedy chops and also his open-heartedness in performance. Chris was such a sensation at Second City in Chicago that when SNL came calling for casting suggestions, everyone there suggested Chris Farley, even over themselves, as did Mike Myers, who was already on the SNL cast. Lauren saw Chris perform at Second City and hired him straight away to join the cast of SNL in the spring of 1990 for the 16th season alongside Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, and Julia Sweeney. He soon became a huge standout performer who brought and created iconic sketch characters to the show. From all accounts, who he was on SNL and in movies was basically himself. He was on and funny in real life, just as he was on those. And Lorne Michaels, the producer in Svengali behind SNL, described Chris Farley as infuriatingly talented. And I think that's very fitting uh, of his reputation on and off the screen there. We're going to talk about some of the most iconic characters and sketches that Chris Farley had on SNL. I wanted to highlight four or five of them in particular, and then of course we can talk about any others that are super memorable to you guys. First and foremost, I think we have to talk about one Matt Foley motivational speaker. Named after a priest from his uh, hometown neighborhood. Thank you for stealing one of my fun <laughs> Matt Foley facts, Becky. Foley facts. I'm not keeping a list of everything that you spoil that I'm going to say. You mean we both watched the same documentary on Chris Farley? <laughs> I think that's what it does indicate, yes. <laughs> Young lady, what do you want to do with your life? I want to live in a van down by the river. Well, you'll have plenty of time to live in a van down by the river when... You're living in a van down by the river! Now, you kids are probably asking yourselves, Hey, Matt, how can we get back on the right track? Well, as I see it, there is only one solution. And that is for me to get my gear, move it on in here, because I'm going to bunk with you, buddy. We're going to be buddies. We're going to be pals. We're going to... Old Matt's gonna be your shadow. Here's you, here's Matt. There's you, there. Whoops a daisy. Whoops a daisy. The character of Matt Foley was created by Bob Odenkirk, and the sketch was written by Odenkirk uh, because he and Chris Farley were performers together at Second City, and they were both hired on SNL, but Odenkirk was hired to be a writer. Farley did the Matt Foley act eight times a week on the Second City Chicago hmm. stage, even up to two months before they were hired for Saturday Night Live. And according to Odenkirk, it killed every single night, every single time, which isn't really a surprise. The first version of the sketch ever on SNL was the night Christina Applegate hosted, and she described Farley as a puppy dog. This sketch is infamous not only for being one of the biggest sketch hits of the show ever, but also for the entire cast breaking character on stage and laughing because Farley's performance was so much more exuberant and over-the-top even compared to rehearsals. What did you guys think of Matt Foley, Motivational Speaker? 
I just want to say, overall, we watched the best of Chris Farley. I was a huge SNL fan at this time. Like, this is my, these were my years of SNL, was the Farley, Sandler, Myers era. And I have not watched any of these clips in decades. Definitely watched them all, you know, very, very familiar with them, but just haven't watched them in forever. And I have to say, like, Chris Farley's best of SNL, every sketch was a winner. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to me, every sketch I was cracking up. My whole family was asleep. I think it was like 1030 at night. We have two kids. We go to bed early. But I was like, oh, maybe I'll watch another sketch or two. And I ended up watching the whole thing. I could not turn it off. I was dying laughing. I wouldn't have considered myself a specifically Chris Farley fan, as you will mm-hmm. As I will note later, I have never seen Tommy Boy or Black Sheep, but I am very familiar with his SNL stuff, just haven't watched it in forever. And this sketch, oh my God, like I was afraid I was going to wake up my family. I was laughing so hard. I love that it's a real character. Like it's not a parody of somebody. Like it's an original character. And it's just so funny. Like from start to finish, even when like what he's saying isn't so funny, it's the way he delivers it. Like it kills me. So yeah, I had a great time. With Matt Foley, down by the river. <laughs> Chris, what about you? I don't like it. <gasps> oh, God! Oh, my God. I find the sketch somewhat amusing, but this is <laughs> like... Amusing. What is wrong with you? I don't like this character. Wow. What about his performance of the character? It's very loud. <laughs> oh, boy, Oh, guys. my God. <laughs> So this Matt Foley character is what I think of when I think of Chris Farley. I think of a table breaking, (laughs) which is not exclusive to this character necessarily. But that is like the image in my mind is this very loud and very sort of uncomfortable brand of comedy of like kind of a bull in a china shop, just like kind of wreaking havoc on an otherwise kind of normal scene. The scene is like a, a family, like trying to have a little like intervention with their kids, you know, and those characters are all pretty like normal average family. And then he comes in and is like this major chaotic figure. So to kind of explain where I'm coming from with this character is uh, Chris Farley has the distinction of being the only movie star I've ever walked out of a movie on. (laughs) Which one? Whoa. January 1997. I was with my friend Larissa at the mall. And I think maybe we tried to like buy a ticket to something like Jerry Maguire, which was out at the time, but we were 14. So I think we were carded or whatever, or otherwise denied. Uh, Denied. And so for (laughs) the only movie that like, I guess we hadn't seen or that was rated PG-13 was Beverly Hills Ninja. Oh, wow. Oh, that one. (laughs) Oh, wow. So we went in and 15 to 20 minutes later, walked back out because we were just like, this is like unwatchable, even for 14 year olds who were not that discerning at the moment about what we did, you know, while we were just hanging out at the mall. And that kind of really defined, I think, my relationship (laughs) with him. Um, I had seen Tommy Boy, I think once on VHS, but didn't remember anything. And it was it was a movie that everyone at that age was like, oh, that's so funny. And I was like, "Mm." did you watch him on SNL growing up? Same with Mike Myers, you know, like, I mean, they were on at the same time a lot, a lot of those years. So I would see it occasionally. And I didn't really like sketches like Matt Foley. And that's what I remembered him by. So so what didn't you like about that sketch? Like, is it just the emphasis on 
the physicality of the performance or like too much emphasis on physical comedy yeah it's it's part like it's just he's very loud shouting he's a little sweaty he's in ill-fitting clothes he's playing a character you know that's not him but i just find the character like really off-putting and uncomfortable in a way that i don't like like it's sort of funny but more makes me like kind of sad and just like put off more than i find it funny And I do really like awkward humor, like, in general. I mean, fish-out-of-water humor is, like, some of my favorite stuff. Or, like, Lisa Kudrow on The Comeback or Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, I like that kind of discomfort of, like, a person being at odds with, like, a normal kind of environment around them. And, like, those characters always seem like they're trying to fit in and can't. And Farley's characters are so extreme that they couldn't even really fit in no matter how hard they tried. You know, like, Matt Foley comes in and he's already at like 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, whatever. Like it there's not like much of a, a build to it. And it's just like straight on discomfort the whole time. So it's like I recognize like the talent of like inhabiting that character and that he's not boring. Like you can't <laughs> you can't tear your eyes away from him. But part of Chris Farley's comedy is like, I see that there's like this desperation behind it that makes me sad. Like it it outweighs the amount of amusement I get because I sense how hard he's working to make me laugh and how much he needs me to laugh. And that if I don't laugh, I feel like I'm going to seriously wound this vulnerable person who's (laughs) Mm. trying so hard and I don't want that responsibility. And so... Yeah, that desperation always just makes me kind of feel bad for him. And that is the overarching sense of him that I've had without having watched very many of his movies or seen a ton of his SNL. Like, this is all, like, looking back, having not seen most of this stuff in years and years. So, you know, maybe my opinion Mm -hmm. will um, fluctuate a little bit from there. Do you like SNL? Sometimes, yes. Who who do you—who's, like, the cast members that are, like— Ones that you like. Or even particular sketches or sketch characters. Kristen Wiig, for sure. Okay. That's it. No. <laughs> End of list. <laughs> I'm just curious. I like yeah. that era. Like Molly Shannon. Okay. It does Will tend Ferrell. to be... I don't really like Will Ferrell that much. I mean, some of his sketches are funny, but he's not someone that I'm drawn to. And like, I mean, m- most SNL people are physical in in some way. But like I was kind of saying, I think with Mike Myers too, is like I like more kind of cerebral comedy and like more subtle things where you can like read just little awkward things on the face rather than like in your face kind of screaming awkwardness or something. And I think someone like Kristen Wiig does that more often, you know? Like, she can be very restrained in a lot of the characters, even though they're still, like, very broad and funny. That's fair. I mean, in in the particular case of Matt Foley, I feel like it's an alien reaction to not laugh at it, but we clearly have different comedic sensibilities. And I mean, I love Kristen Wiig and I love how she approaches everything. I think part of why I love Matt Foley so much and why it still makes me laugh so hard is that... He is expressing real pain and desperation, but through that character and the pain and the desperation fit that character and the circumstances he's in, in a way that's like a perfect marriage of material and performer. And so for me, all the pain that is clearly there, like on the surface, clearly on the surface and under the surface, for me, it successfully transmuted that into really hilarious comedy. I especially found it so funny now. Also, you know, having a lot more family dramas and very special episodes about, you know, finding drugs in the kid's bedroom or whatever. Having seen so many more of those now, I get what this is kind of playing off of a lot more. But I agree with you, Becky, that it is such a sui generis, like, it's a -a one-of-a-kind character. Like, there is no other Matt Foley. He is not a ripoff of anything else. 
And again, I, I think it's just a perfect marriage of the right character and the right performer. I wouldn't describe myself as someone who loved, like, purely physical comedy. I do tend to love the more intellectual, especially, like, absurd type of stuff. You know, like, I've talked about Monty Python and that kind of generation of SNL. I think Molly Shannon is is more on that wavelength as well. And I think that's, like, why she's so genius. But then she would also have the physical comedy aspect of it, too. And, like, her Mary Catherine Gallagher character... She would always end the sketch by, like, throwing herself violently backwards into whatever chairs or whatever were immediately behind her. Yeah, that character, I think, is very much a Chris Farley successor in a lot of ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, I just want to point out the line before Matt Foley even comes up is, he's been in the basement drinking coffee for four hours. <laughs> like, that made me laugh. It was That made me laugh so hard, especially, like, knowing what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and and that line itself, there was, a um, on YouTube, there's a video from the Second City account of Chris Farley doing the Matt Foley, like, motivational speaker sketch on the stage at Second City. And that line is in it. Like, as in it's mm-hmm. uh, Bob Odenkirk playing the dad, you know, and he's saying, he's been in the basement for the past four hours drinking <laughs> coffee. And, of course, on SNL, they replaced Bob with Phil Hartman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Phil Hartman, again, like, part of Phil Hartman's brilliance was being the straight man and everything. Mm-hmm. Um And yeah, just the deadpan way he says he's been in the basement drinking coffee for the past four hours. I did like that line as well. It's great. I did. I did think it was like a good sketch. So I don't want to say like it's not a funny sketch. It's more just that like I find this character uncomfortable and it stops me from like really liking to watch this character's sketches. And I don't want to speak for you, but that feels like a reaction of empathy. It feels like you're having like an empathetic reaction to seeing someone who you perceive as genuinely exhibiting pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah, I have more to say about that in other yeah. contexts later. Next, let's talk about the Chippendales sketch. No, Barney. No, no. No, Barney, we've, we've made our decision. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, excuse me, can I, can, I, can I make a point? Sure. You know, I, I just want to say that this guy, he is one hell of a dancer, you know, and he's got the sexiest moves I have ever seen. And if you're really serious about going with me, you know, it can only be because his body is so bad. <laughs> Thanks, man. Sure. Uh, you know, but uh, because on straight dancing and presentation, ain't no way I'm better than him. Uh, amen. Amen. I mean, is this the most iconic sketch? Like, not Farley, SNL. <laughs> it's way up there. It's way up there. Um, and, you know, it's. It, I'm sure there are people listening who haven't seen it before, but you, you should watch it. Uh, it was one of his earliest sketches on the show. Chris Farley was initially very nervous when he was pitched this sketch. Uh, but he soon realized how undeniably funny it was going to be. The basic kind of premise is that they're holding auditions for the Chippendales dancers, which again, for people who do not know, (laughs) because they're younger than us, was an all-male burlesque dance performance troupe. Oh, it still exists. I'm pretty sure I can still see it in Vegas. It's a male exotic dancers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Magic Mike. Right. Which is also something you can see in Vegas now. (laughs) (laughs) Bob Odenkirk did not write this sketch. He was very hesitant about that sketch, and he feels queasy about it to this day because he knew that a good chunk of the comedic reaction and why it was funny is just because Chris Farley was fat. And one of the kind of culminating moments in this sketch is him ripping his shirt off, you know, and and dancing around, like thrashing his shirt like wildly around and, you know, kind of gyrating his very large body all over the place. And, and 
you know, again, it's like comedically undeniable and the audience absolutely roared and people still absolutely laugh their asses off at it still now. The way that Bob Odenkirk described it, though, was very interesting to me because he he knows that like Chris Farley would have loved the laugh that he knew he'd get for that. But Chris was always the type of person to put himself down and be self-deprecating and refer to himself in derogatory terms. He literally described his brand on SNL as fatty fall down. And that was the phrase he would say over and over to describe himself. So it both gave Chris Farley the thing that he clearly very much wanted, but it also justified kind of his most negative thoughts about himself. And and in a way reinforced to him the idea that he's funny only because he's fat. I love Bob Odenkirk, but I'm going to respectfully disagree. I don't think it's funny because he's fat. It's funny for a multitude of reasons. It is because, first of all, the premise alone is funny because he does not have a muscular physique as Patrick Swayze does that he would even be considered for Chippendales. Right. So (laughs) again, to set up the sketch a bit more, it's like it's it's Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze as the only people who are there at the moment, at least for those Chippendales auditions. So they're going head to head against each other. Yeah. So it's the premise alone is funny because it's unexpected that a large, a large man would even be up for this role, let alone who did he beat out (laughs) 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 to to be in this final like spot. (laughs) Um, It's, it's funny because he is committing a thousand percent to these dance moves and he's doing them well. <laughs> like he's doing like the snake or whatever. Worm? Snake. The, worm? Oh, no, the, the worm? The worm. The worm. worm. He is committing to a thousand percent yes. these dance moves. And and that's funny. And then the, there's also just the surreal element in this sketch that the judges are really like really judging hard and like And really they're like dead silent and methodical. Dead silent. And they treat it so seriously. And then their answer for not going with them is you have a grotesque body or something like that. <laughs> like it's just the absurdity that makes it so funny. Because I think what I when I think of this sketch, I just think Oh, Chris Farley is dancing and it's funny next to this hot guy. But really, the whole sketch is so absurd. And I love how absurd it is. Like, the whole judges part of it, like, like elevates it, I think. Just, like, the reaction. And it's like, what? What what world are we in? <laughs> yeah, this sketch was written by James Downey, who's one of the most, like, well-known veteran writers on SNL. And his stuff always did tend more toward, like, things with just inherently absurd setups. I agree. I still think the sketch is hilarious. Bob Onekirk's perspective on it was just really interesting, though, especially as someone who was there at the time, obviously who was very close with Chris Farley. His reaction is more about Farley himself as a person, Mm -hmm. and less so a reaction to the content of the sketch and, you know, how the sketch would actually go off. And yeah, I think it's with very good reason that that's one of the most prominent SNL sketches ever, because it is completely insanely hilarious. And Farley's, like, dedication to it and the grace with which he is moving his body are impressive. I agree with Bob Odenkirk, one-third, and you guys, (laughs) two-thirds. And I mean that literally, like, in terms of the time of the sketch, because I think the first two-thirds is really good, and then I think they ruin it at the end by having the judges call out the fact that he is fat. I think it's funny. 
funny. <laughs> no, I see. I think the funny part is that like we're filling that in already. Like the the comedy is that like we're like looking at these two who are not at all alike, and like obviously Patrick Swayze is much more like the obvious answer of who should who between these two should be Chippendales. But the fact that the judges are deliberating over it is so funny because they're not saying that they're they're just like wow this is such a hard choice and like we're sitting here thinking like no it's not a hard choice you know like it's obvious and so once they call that out i think the sketch both becomes meaner kind of in the way that like odenkirk was referring to of just like calling him grotesque and also just like i think that ruins to me what was funny about it is that there was this big unsaid thing and that like we were living in the world where like they could be like we had to imagine like for some reason what these judges were seeing in him and why they were seeing him as equal and yeah, I, th- I think it would have been funnier. But I think it doesn't. I think it doesn't do that because that's the capstone. That's the punchline of the whole thing. And yes, I, I agree with you to the extent that like it is a obviously it's a punchline that tells the joke explicitly, you know. But I think the fact that the whole rest of the sketch is letting your imagination play out with the prospect that he could be considered for this, that he might clinch the role, that Patrick Swayze's character is dead determined that Farley's guy is going to win the audition and get the role. I think that that is what makes it comedically great as a sketch, is like that it that it holds that until the very, very end. Oh, that's what ruined it for me. Oh. Like As soon as they did that, I was like... No, that's the way it. I would have ended it. That's that's what yeah. makes it funny to me. I mean, the whole thing is funny, but I think that makes it extra funny because it's like, why did they? Because I mean, he looks the way he looks the whole time, but they're like, hmm. And I thought it hmm. would have rung very false for him to actually get it. Like, I, I think that would have, again, it's like, it's the sketch is absurd already for him to actually win it would be like what's referred to as a hat on a hat. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying it should have ended differently, just differently and cutting that out, but not, like, change what happened there. But, but I mean, did you did you laugh? Not when, at, at the parts that you enjoyed? Before that part, yeah. Okay. So it's been it's been proven so far. Chris Farley can make you laugh. <laughs> I, I smiled. Okay, okay. Next, I want to talk about one that's really near and dear to my heart, an SNL commercial parody for a product called Schmidt's Gay. <laughs> Got a big thirst and you're gay. Reach for a cold, tall bottle of Schmidt's Gay. I think I'm gonna like this. Uh, yeah. Schmidt's Gay was an SNL commercial parody written by the great Robert Smigel, uh, a, veter- a veteran SNL writer of many of their most legendary sketches, and especially of commercial parodies and pre taped animated shorts. This was the first and only time, I think, that I've seen a gay male character portrayed in anything comedic who wasn't traditionally attractive and skinny or stupidly muscle-bound. They're just Uh, surrounded by guys like that. (laughs) Yeah, they're surrounded by guys like that, but, like, the lead 
the the lead of the sketch. I, and I think Farley's character is very much like the leading force of that sketch. Um, I still find it so hilarious um, in such a like surprisingly less judgmental version of that pitch, that premise for a sketch. Uh, the premise of it is these two gay guys go to a pool party and they're surprised that there are all these hot muscle bound studs there and they like spray beer on each other and have a good fun time. Well, we don't know. They're they're house sitting and they open up a beer, right? And then it's a parody of a commercial. Right. It's like parodying all the beer commercials that kind of have scantily clad women pitching beer to to guys. I mean, to me, this isn't necessarily like a Chris Farley sketch. It's just like a funny commercial parody sketch. So to me, he's funny in it, but it's not like, to me, he's not the driving force of why this sketch is super funny. I still like the sketch, though. <laughs> Chris, what are your thoughts? Eh. I don't know. I didn't find <laughs> it that funny. It was fine. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of nostalgia here. Seth, were these the years like that you watched SNL live? I watched SNL live throughout this era. I also watched all these episodes when they were in syndication, like running on VH1, running on E, I think, had them. Comedy Central aired them at least a couple times a day. I watched the ever-loving fuck out of all of these all the time. Yeah, I did too. And I think that there might be some nostalgia at play here. (laughs) I think so. I mean, there are sketches that I saw, you know, later in SNL that I have, like, in-jokes with my friends about. So, Mm -hmm. like, even if maybe they're not funny by today's standards, I would still find them funny, like, looking at them. So I, I, I get that, like, that because you th- found it funny then, you still do, whereas you wouldn't necessarily if you were just coming to it cold. I mean, I get I get that, Becky, like, and I, I can't, like, outright deny it, but I just appreciate so much about it just as a premise. Mm-hmm. And again, just, like, the level of commitment of the guys in it, even though obviously this is a much less kind of demonstrative Chris Farley performance and less physical, like, at least in the sense of his character. I also think, like, there's good reason why... There's a reaction shot of Chris Farley, like, flipping up, uh, flip-up sunglasses. Mm -hmm. And that's become, like, a a, a ubiquitous reaction gif on the internet, like, for decades now. I just think it's kind of an inherently hilarious sketch, and I still liked it. I also just wanted to mention, kind of, because Chris Farley became such a staple performer on so many other legendary sketches. I wanted to mention one called Lunch Lady Land with Adam Sandler. That's Sandler singing a song about the lunch lady. And Farley plays the titular lunch lady and dances with him all over the stage. Quite titular, I'd say. Uh, Yeah, profoundly titular. Uh, The music video for that sold over 2 million copies. (laughs) Uh, There was also Bill Swirsky's Superfans about the uh, group of Chicago Bears superfans who just constantly exchange anecdotes and eat sausages and have heart attacks. They're the ones that go, duh, bears. Yeah, and I mean, that was that was one of the things that I think was kind of like a catchphrase that definitely made its way around my social circle in elementary school. I had no memory of that sketch or any catchphrases from it. Oh, I, re- I recall watching it live. Yeah, I mean, there was also the Gap Girls sketch with him and Spade and Adam Sandler. Um, I still will go, lay off me, I'm starving. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> 
I quote that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's using his physical frame and using his size to fuel the humor. But I think it's so funny that the funny of it transcends the pain of that, I think. I mean, there's plenty of fat comedians. I don't find them all funny. It's like Chris Farley has great timing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, I, I... can always appreciate a good fat joke. And like, I am a fat person. (laughs) A good joke's a good joke. And a lazy bad joke is a lazy bad joke. One of the other mainstay sketches that Chris Farley did was The Chris Farley Show. And the premise of The Chris Farley Show is that Chris Farley (laughs) would interview a very famous person. One of the most popular of these was Sir Paul McCartney. And the kind of humor of this sketch comes entirely from how nervous and anxious and awkward and excited and inspired Chris Farley, this character, is to meet his idols. I think think we've got time for one more question. Hey, uh, remember when uh, you were in the the Beatles and uh, you did that um, album, Abbey Road, and uh, at the very... And uh, the song, uh, it was, song goes, uh, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You, you remember that? Yes. Uh, is that true? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Chris. In, in my experience, it is, I find the more you give, the more you get. I think this is such a funny concept for a sketch. And I don't know Chris Farley personally, but I feel like, I mean, it's named the Chris Farley show, but I can like tell this is probably like who he is, is just like a very excitable, mood switching, kind of like socially anxious person. Very, yeah, very much so. Especially with people that aren't in a scene with him, like going back and forth with jokes. Like if he just has to be himself, he's awkward. Yeah. And I I just, I think the sketch is so funny. It's such a good idea for a sketch and it just works with him so well. And uh, and this is, again, something that I quote a lot these days. It's just like, remember that? That was awesome. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was one of the most memorable sketches of his for me, uh, both at the time that he was a kid and, you know, now kind of looking back at all of this stuff. I I just love the really genuine excitement and earnestness that just beams out of him the whole time in, in these sketches. And I also liked... Like, especially in the Paul McCartney one, how game he was and how game the other people were to, like, play along with that. In a similar way to, like, Zach Galifianakis's Between Two Ferns, where, you know, to a certain extent, the comedy does rely on the person who's the guest kind of, you know, being an effective straight man character and, and having that having that strength and, and uh, the being solidly in the moment enough to kind of have him bounce off of you like that. Um, I watched another one like with Jeff Daniels and I thought that one was really good. Chris, I'm curious, what did you think of the Chris Farley show? I liked it. <gasps> <laughs> wow! 
<laughs> I would feel like this would be more your cup of tea because he's not flying off the walls. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's really underplaying this character. And you could play this character in a really big way, too. And oh, that, totally. you know, would be also a, like, justifiable way to do it, I think. But he is, like you said, like, really boyish, like, just very excited underplaying it. And because of that, it feels more like a real person to me. It feels like a real performance that he's actually kind of acting and not just improv stage acting where you're like loud and just kind of blasting it to the back. Not that that's what all improv is, but it tends to be, you know, more of a theatrical thing. It's funny that you say that because Lorne Michaels specifically told a story about how when Chris Farley like first started in the first weeks on SNL, he had to like pull him aside and teach him like, Chris, remember now you're playing for a camera lens. You are not playing for the back row of the Second City Theater Mm. anymore. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we are finally now covering Scorsese because there's a Scorsese segment (laughs) on the Chris Farley show. It's true. It's a good one, too. And yeah, I I think it's all three (laughs) of those, Jeff Daniels and Paul McCartney and Scorsese, they were all really great at playing the straight man and not trying to do anything because that's kind of the crux of the scene is that they hardly say anything they're just kind of like yes i remember that because he's not asking real questions (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) and i think a lot of like performers the three of them are more like not even actors in most of their cases um primarily you know that if it was like another comedian or like some guest host i feel like they would have tried to also be big too and that would ruin the joke so absolutely i really liked the sketch and overall i enjoyed watching this best of and i did not think i would because because that Matt Foley character is the one that I always think of, and that's kind of like my least favorite aspect of him. So I was kind of prepared for a lot of that. And there's some of that throughout, but there's also a fair amount of characters like this. I have to mention the share sketch, just because that was my favorite one of these, because it was so weird, where he's playing Lori Davis, a hair guru. <laughs> and the sketch mm. is so weird that I had to look it up and and it's it's totally real. Like there is not even a parody, really, because the sketch is very underplayed, and it's just like a bunch of women talking about hair in like kind of banal and repetitive mm-hmm. ways. And it's share, and I was like, this has to be a real thing, and it is, and it is just as stupid <laughs> with the real share. I did as not it is in remember that until you just said it, and I loved that as a kid. It's an hour long too. And Isn't I watched... that one of the sketches Christina Applegate was in as well? Yeah, and she, she was share. Like, she was share. That's right, and she's talking about how like amazing the product is in her hair. But it's just like the sketch is barely maybe like 2% more heightened than the actual commercial. And that's kind of what I like in comedy is that it's like it fe- it still feels real. And the sketch like is just so dumb. <laughs> but like also like it's actually an infomercial that's almost exactly like that. Like the real Lori Davis, and that's who Chris Farley plays, is exactly like him. Like she, <laughs> He is not doing anything that she does not do herself. Feel this. It's dry. It doesn't stick. It's not sticky at all. It's smooth. There's no stickiness. Lori, this is the complete opposite of sticky. Now, tell us what you've done here. (gasps) This is the most amazing hairspray ever. I call it my minute miracle. And you know what the secret is? There's no alcohol in it. You know that dry, hard-feeling hairspray gives you? You mean that dry, crunchy, brittle, stiff... Um, yes, sticky, you know. potato chippy sort of... It's, it's dead, crisp, flaky. Right. Sticky. Yes. 
That's because most hairsprays go on wet and they put alcohol in to dry it. Hairspray always dries my hair. Is that the alcohol? Yes. So alcohol has a drying effect. Yes. But your hairspray doesn't. Why not? Because my hairspray doesn't have any alcohol in it. No alcohol. And yeah, in general, I mean, I, I was just kind of surprised to find how, like, athletic and nimble he was. Like, how, you know, against, like, the stereotype of his body type is, like, he's very physical. He's always jumping into things. Doing cartwheels? Cartwheels, running, like, yeah. and not, like, in a way where it looks like he's, like, holding back or, like, exhausted at the end of it. Like, he has so much energy. Like, it's <laughs> insane. Yeah. So I was really just impressed with his overall, like commitment and just like how he's always like 110% in every single sketch. Look, I've always known he's like a great physical comedian, grew up watching him in this era, but like I walked away from watching this best of thinking, is he the best SNL member of all time? I think you could argue that, but I was just like blown away, honestly. This best of even included not full sketches, but just moments where he isn't like the lead of the sketch. Right. <laughs> like him as El Nino, Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> like yes. just moments like that where he like completely annihilates everybody else in the sketch and he's just so funny at what he's doing that it's like the rest of the sketch doesn't even exist. It's just him on camera. Yeah, there was a recurring Sandler sketch called Pepper Boy about the boy at an Italian restaurant who would grind fresh pepper Which over is people's... like, let's, I mean... <laughs> so stupid. But they gave Chris Farley literally only one line in that and he was pissed off about it. Because he had to fly home from like Tommy Boy or something. Yeah, from Toronto. And we'll get into that production schedule later. But like Chris Farley was pissed. And so right before air, he put on this like gigantic, like foot and a half long beard. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. And he delivers this one line with like so much gusto and bravado that it completely derails everything else. Why, thank you, Pepper Boy. That's the perfect amount of pepper. Bravo! <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about Bennett Brower, which is the quotes guy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he's at Weekend Update. The this, quotes guy? The, yeah, you can't see the quotes that I'm making right now. <laughs> yeah, my my mo uh, my host most likely to is taken from Bennett Brower. As is mine. Can I can I just say that like when he <laughs> When he <laughs> what what's okay in this sketch he's just a guy who uses quotes a lot but he uses he uses them in the wrong way <laughs> like um and then he flies away <laughs> I was very confused by the flying like is it because he's quoting so much that it's like wings taking him off I no I don't think so I think it was just like a Peter Pan joke kind of so like is it you think happy thoughts and you fly I guess so it's so. like an opposite yeah does it matter it's it so really funny matter. watching so Chris funny. Farley fly through the air and also it's like a live blooper because the the wires weren't working for a they second. totally malfunctioned and they caught on <laughs> part of the scenery like part yeah. of the the actual uh, set but that was so funny because it's so weird and then this extra weird thing happens with it getting caught and then he finally is free and he's just flying and i was just like dying laughing that like i don't know if i would remember this character as much without the absurdity of him flying through the air yeah. but but it's super funny man yeah i love that one too uh, i don't exercise 
And when I do sweat, I don't shower. I'm not spick and span. I don't clean the area between my crotch and legs. But for the time being, I guess the network enforcers are opting for my approach until Joe Consumer tells them he'd rather get his two cents from commentators who don't make babies cry and don't drink maple syrup straight from the bottle and don't leave old dried up deodorant cakes under their arms for weeks at a time and uh, I'm flying, I'm flying, I'm flying! Holy shnikes! Look You're at Kevin! We're doing flying. something! Please! <laughs> I have a weight problem. Can't they lift me? You're almost flying. This is long! Oh, oh, what the hell? I also like there was there was a sketch about this like older married couple who just read the Zagat's restaurant guide. Mm. Is that Sandler? Yeah, it was him and Sandler, and Sandler was the 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 spiteful, cynical husband. Adam Sandler was not a very good scene partner for Chris Farley, at least in these sketches. Like, I feel like he, and, you know, we'll obviously talk about him in the next episode, but their energies, like, did not mesh well. Like, Sandler's always well, almost breaking that's, character. That's the thing, is that Sandler couldn't, ha- like, he couldn't stop himself yeah. from laughing, because Farley was just so funny. And it didn't, like, to me, it kind of, like, ruined a lot of those sketches. I am of the camp that enjoys it when sketch performers break because it's just too funny for them to handle. It wouldn't be funny if Chris Farley broke. It's funny when someone else yes. is laughing while the, the main guy in the sketch is doing his thing. Exactly. It can um, be funny sometimes. I don't know. But because it was like every time with Adam Sandler, maybe. Adam Sandler does it. He's like Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. I was like, going to bring up Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, yeah. Like he's just that. That's his. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about Adam Sandler right. in the next episode. Yeah. There's plenty. <laughs> so Chris Farley's lifestyle basically led to the end of his career on SNL. Saturday Night Live was in a lot of ways kind of the pinnacle of what Chris Farley envisioned for himself and for his career, at least at this stage in his life. And Farley may well have believed alongside that, that he had to be a little bit fucked up to be creative and to be funny. His drinking and drug use and eating were in excess like everything else in his life. He would apparently get messed up and really withdraw from all his friends. Like his biggest reaction during his deepest episodes of addiction was was withdrawal and isolation. So Chris was sent to rehab by Lauren at several periods during and after SNL. And that did help him for a time every time they did that. And he was always a lot clearer and sharper when he came back from rehab. But then a lot of bad press about the show and its plummeting ratings moved Lauren Michaels to clean house at SNL. Most of the other main SNL cast at the time, along with Mike Myers and Phil Hartman, left over the course of 1994 and 1995. Reportedly, Chris Farley and Adam Sandler were actually fired from the show at the end of their last seasons. Oh, really? After he left SNL, Chris Farley Farley immediately launched full bore into developing and getting his film career started. And well, he did well with that. <laughs> yeah. So first off, Chris Farley made some scene-stealing appearances in Wayne's World 1 and 2, which we discussed in the previous episode about Mike Myers. He got a larger role as the unexpected romantic lead in Coneheads, released in summer 1993, which of course was another SNL adaptation 
of a sketch into a feature movie. I kind of want to rewatch it. I watched it a lot growing up. I do too. I watched (laughs) it a lot growing up. I watched it, I saw it in the theaters when it first came out. Um, I saw it at a drive-in. Whoa. Okay. Was this during COVID? (laughs) No, I mean, like back in, like when it came out. And it's so strange to me because I feel like a lot of people of our generation saw it growing up, but it was a flop at the theaters. Well, I watched it on stolen (laughs) pay-per-view. Awesome. Farley was also in Airheads, which has since become kind of a cult classic early 90s comedy. Yeah, I actually rewatched it just because it had um, oh, yeah? several of our people in there. Oh, it's okay. You know? It's okay. Yeah. I've rewatched it like once or twice as an adult. I have not seen it. He's in Billy Madison. He's also in Adam Sandler's Billy Madison. And in that same year as Billy Madison came Chris Farley's first true lead role in Tommy Boy. You know what, Richard? You don't know me as good as you think you do. I care about stuff. I'm getting better at this sales thing. Well, I'm not, but I could if you help me. Forget it. I got enough to do without having to change your diapers. Richard? Is this your coat? <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> that guy in a little coat. That guy in a little coat. Don't. <laughs> that guy in a little coat. That guy in a little coat. Take it off, dickhead. I'm serious. Richard, what's happening? Oh. Tommy Boy, released in 1995, directed by Peter Seagal, written by Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner, Really largely written by Fred Wolf, another Saturday Night Live writer, but for, I think it was for WGA reasons, he ended up being uncredited. Stars Chris Farley, David Spade, Brian Dennehy, Dan Aykroyd, Rob Lowe in an uncredited role, Julie Warner, and Bo Derek. Wait, why is Rob Lowe uncredited? We'll get there. <laughs> Chris Farley plays the titular Thomas R. Callahan, a.k.a. Tommy Boy. And David Spade plays Richard, an employee of Tommy's dad's company and a childhood friend of Tommy. A brief synopsis. Aging auto part manufacturing business owner Big Tommy Callahan's third generation fail son has to learn to grow up and become an adult so he can become worthy of inheriting his father's company. What's a fail son? A fail son is, that's an internet term for the son of a prominent or famous or very rich business successful person who's a total failure in their own ventures. And Tommy Boy, that fail son, has to save the company by making some big new sales before it gets sold off to soulless profiteering competitor Zelensky. Here are the Tommy facts. Lorne Michaels came up with the original idea about two brothers that became Tommy Boy and pitched it to Sherry Lansing, the head of Paramount. The original idea would have been about Chris Farley and Rob Lowe. But Lauren saw Chris Farley and David Spade's interactions in their office at 30 Rock on Saturday Night Live, and he felt they made a good team. So the role of Richard was created for Spade. The original title of the script was Billy the Third, a Midwestern. But Adam Sandler's movie Billy Madison was also in pre-production at the same time, so they deliberated for months and changed the title to Tommy Boy. They could have had it Tommy the Third. I mean, it's not like the name Billy was central to that. Yeah, they should have kept the A Midwestern. Yeah. You got gold like that. You can't throw it away. Rob Lowe's eventual role as Paul, the son of Bo Derek's character, was uncredited for reasons that are still kind of unclear after 28 years. 
There were scheduling conflicts that did come up for him up until the moment production started, though, and they did hold an audition for one Matthew McConaughey to potentially replace him. However, that audition apparently did not go very well. Wait, so Rob Lowe is not in the credits for that movie? Paramount apparently really wanted Rob Lowe after his performance in Wayne's World, and so that's who it went to, and they just kind of things happened to line up when production had started. He's not in the credits. I, I also read that at the time was one of the points in Rob Lowe's career where he had bad headlines. And so they were kind of, I think they were unsure whether this was going to be a success or a total flop. So I think they were also kind of hesitant. But again, it, I, I read a bunch of different, totally conflicting, totally different random stories about proposed reasons why this was the case. I think it's one of those things that like is just kind of lore. I think that's so strange because he's in the movie. Yeah. No, he's, it's him. <laughs> it's, is it really him? We don't know. Oh, I don't, I don't think anyone could be mistaken for Rob Lowe, sir. Also, I didn't know that these podcasts would become a, a Rob Lowe marathon <laughs> i know i i did not intend for this to become a rob Lowe podcast but yeah. it's apparently getting there a lot of the character of tommy boy is directly drawn from chris farley's real life farley's father hired him straight out of school to work at his business and tommy boy himself graduates from marquette university the very same alma mater that chris farley eventually matriculated from when director Peter Seagal was hired to direct Tommy Boy, he wanted it to be about two guys who were not brothers, but just friends from childhood, like Lauren's original idea. Seagal and SNL writers Jim Downey and Fred Wolf rewrote Bonnie and Terry Turner's first draft to focus the story around the characters Chris Farley and David Spade would eventually play. But the writing process went on a long time, and Tommy Boy entered production with only two-thirds of a finished script. Always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, definitely a mark that everything is on track. Farley and Spade, of course, ad-libbed a ton of what eventually ended up in the movie on set during filming. But all of that was fully scripted out eventually, as Fred Wolf carefully kept completing the script bit by bit as filming went along, and incorporating anecdotes and bits that David Spade and Chris Farley had developed during SNL. And Fred Wolf was even faxing pages to Toronto from his own honeymoon. <laughs> I'm sure his new bride was ecstatic about yeah. that. Oh, I'm sure. Production of Tommy Boy in Toronto, Canada coincided with the 1994 to 95 season of Saturday Night Live in New York. So Farley and Spade were flying back and forth every few days oh, to boy. work on both. That is insane. They couldn't just wait for the summer? I, I think they didn't want to or something wow. like that. I don't know. The movie's production understandably had some turmoil as a result of all of this. Director Peter Seagal tried to quit the film at one point because he was overwhelmed and thought it couldn't be finished. But Paramount threatened him with a lawsuit compelling him to stay and see it through. And Farley and Spade got in a physical altercation on set after David Spade partied with Rob Lowe one night on a night when Chris Farley had stayed sick in his hotel room due to the crazy production schedule. Are they not needed at SNL, like, during the week? <laughs> Again, it's like, I, I think they would just come back at the time when they would be rehearsing the sketches they were actually in. I guess Friday? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I think the movie was supposed to film over the summer before the season started, and then it, for whatever reason... For, because like, of the writing process taking so long. That's yeah. why. Yikes. So they didn't want to push it a whole extra year. So. Oh, boy. Chris Farley did all his own stunts in Tommy Boy, Yes, including at least one crush table, possibly many. Tommy Boy was released March 31st, 1995. With a budget of $20 million, Tommy Boy made $32 million in theaters worldwide, so it was a financial success already. Paramount has since said that Tommy Boy is one of its 10 best-selling videos of all time. 
making nearly $100 million in home video sales, and that's as of several decades ago. Joining the ranks of such films as the Indiana Jones trilogy, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Wayne's World, and Forrest Gump. And Tommy Boy. (laughs) Yeah, and Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy was savaged by critics, with special pointedness directed toward Chris Farley. This movie is on Roger Ebert's most hated list, although Ebert later clarified in his review of Happy Gilmore that he thought Chris Farley was funny, just not in the movies he chose. To quote Ebert's review in the Chicago Sun-Times, Tommy Boy is one of those movies that plays like an explosion down at the screenplay factory. (laughs) You can almost picture a bewildered office boy, his face smudged with soot, wandering through the ruins and rescuing pages at random. Too bad they didn't mail them to the insurance company instead of filming them. One rare positive review came from Kevin Thomas at the LA Times. The rowdy, rambunctious, sweet-natured Tommy Boy suggests we may have a worthy successor to John Candy in massive, jowly Chris Farley, who is especially funny when he's playing off diminutive David Spade, with whom he was first teamed on Saturday Night Live. Farley reminds us just how liberating an agile, uninhibited, outsized comedian can be in these times of caloric restraint. I like how even complimenting him has to call him massive and jowly. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. In the years since its release, though, it's very clear that Tommy Boy has been found and appreciated by a wide audience. So, Tommy Boy, did you see it near the time when it came out? What did you think of watching it now? Chris, I want you to go first here. (laughs) I want to get the injury and pain out of the way. Cracking my knuckles. I can't actually (laughs) crack my knuckles, but pretending to. I think I saw this, like, as a rental or something like that on VHS when it came out, but I really literally didn't remember anything about the plot. I did remember a couple of jokes, and I know that's just because of they were in the trailer. Like, I remember the trailer with the Flashdance joke and the Star Wars joke where he's talking into a fan saying, like, Luke, I am your father. Perfect. I'm sure I saw the trailer for this, like, ahead of other VHS tapes that I would watch, like Paramount ones. So I was very (laughs) familiar with all the trailer moments. But as for the movie itself, remembered nothing about the story. If you told me I hadn't seen it, I would believe you because <laughs> literally I have no idea. So um, I just think that I saw one of these movies and and then blocked it from my memory. So the movie begins with a young Tommy running into a glass window. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, Farley, now aged to Farley's age, runs into a fence. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> For reasons I'll talk about when we get to the next movie as well. And then the next scene or so, he he gets excited about getting a D-plus in his class. And I was like, that's good because I'm braced for a D-plus movie. But then Brian Dennehy shows up. And the two have really great father-son chemistry. And through that character, you start to see Tommy as, I think, a real character. Like, his love for his father and vice versa creates a real anchor for the movie that I feel does a lot for the rest of the story. And it's the rare moment that I think you see Farley really sharing the screen with someone. I mean, across his career. Like, he's always so dominant on SNL. And he's in sketches with some of the funniest people, you know, of all time. He's in sketches with Mike Myers. He's and sketches with Janine Garofalo and all kinds of guest stars who often, like, take up the screen. But in most of those sketches, he's the one that you're watching, and they're often playing kind of, like, the straight man to him. Like, no matter how usually, like, boisterous they are, they're usually not trying 
to like match him. And so obviously like this Brian Dennehy character, it's more like a, a realistic character, like more down to earth. It's not like a big, broad comedic role, but I really felt like they were acting together and playing off each other's energy in a way that I don't really see a lot with Chris Farley. And it just gave me like a sense of him actually like performing a role, which I think you can also see later in this movie. I also really appreciated the way that the father was written, where his father loves him and doesn't hate him. And I think the more obvious way to go with this movie would have been to write it where the father is like, oh, like my son is such a fuck up. Like you can't totally he's not going to take over the business very well because that's kind of like the default mode like you know we, we talked about some of the, in the sketch writing is like it's very easy to make fun of Chris Farley because Chris Farley makes fun of himself and I think that often the writing around these also has other characters kind of disdaining him as well and this movie really did not do that very much particularly with this character so I really appreciated that and then also watched a documentary where he was talking about his real relationship with his dad and so I recognized that that was also something real for Chris Farley that I think like he really related to that love from the father character and so like really imbued that with a sense that this wasn't just like a broad comedy to be silly and make jokes but that there was also like a real story here and a real character here okay left <laughs> can I open my eyes now dad I, I told you you have to close them in the first place son yeah go ahead go ahead open them up that's my name yeah that's your new office now college grad go on in there <laughs> Awesome! Hey, there's even a fridge! This is great! You can put six packs of soda in here, milk, yogurt, you can put candy bars in the freezer. Anything that you want to keep cool. Mr. Callahan, I need your John Hancock on these reports. John Hancock. It's Herbie Hancock. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, check out my new office. You have a window, and why shouldn't you? You've been here 10 minutes. Now look, son, these are our new catalogs. Get to know them, they're important. Richard, would you promise me you'll look after Tommy Boy here till he gets his feet wet? Sure, and thanks for choosing me. Now don't forget, we're going home early today. I, I got another surprise for you. Cool, thanks, Dad. So in the end, I thought this was watchable and lightly amusing. Like, not a great film, but I wasn't mad. I didn't have a bad time watching it. Like, it it had enough stuff that I found amusing throughout that I had a pretty good time. And also, I just think it was a really good showcase for Farley that showed that he could stretch beyond just being kind of a sketch actor. So that is extremely high praise, given what the rest of this has been. Becky, what do you think? So I have never seen this before. That is surprising to me. I've never, as much as I liked Chris Farley on SNL, I never gravitated towards his movies. I never felt any desire <laughs> to see these movies. They never seemed funny to me, trailer-wise, you know? And then, like, the quotes that would become big quotes, like, never appealed to me, never made me laugh. So I was going into this, like, bracing myself. <laughs> <laughs> For a D-plus, like I was. Yeah, Yeah, like, I... And then it starts, and look, okay, I'll just... Chris, I agree with you, pretty much, top to bottom. Um, where it starts, and my first note was, I am turned off by people who have 100% energy 100% of the time. <laughs> like, and that is what he is at the beginning of this movie, especially, where I'm just like, oh boy, this is going to be a lot to, like, handle. And yeah. I don't know if I can handle this energy, like, the whole way through. But I really liked his relationship with his dad. I thought Brian Denny was, like, brilliant casting, honestly. I uh, Brilliant is actually the exact word I would use, which is crazy to use about a comedy and casting 
interesting. But yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was great. Love that there was like a woman in a painting behind Brian Dennehy. It was Brian Dennehy painted as a woman. Like all the people that have worked for the company of the family. Yeah. Great joke. And I like that all the workers like Tommy. Like it felt like they gave me some exposition in a very a not like in your face way where they're just like, hey, Tommy, like you. then you're like, OK, I'm getting to know him. He's friendly. He's likable. He's, you know, kind of he lacks discipline, but he's not a bad person. And so that made me like the character of Tommy. And I thought him and David Spade made a good pair because they're complete opposites. Like David Spade is diminutive, very wry, very jaded. And Chris Farley is this like big boisterous guy who can't stop talking and being loud. And he's also the least cynical person yeah, alive. Completely. Overall, like I was like, okay, I get it. There were certain things in the in the movie I didn't know were going to happen and I didn't really like them. Like the whole thing with the stepmom like lying and having her son be her lover actually not her son and I was like this movie didn't really need a heist it didn't need any of that extra stuff I think they felt like they needed to shoehorn that in to like make it more exciting somehow yeah. but I agree with you yeah I, I was more into and I was having a good time just seeing this character who is ultimately a good person kind of a fuck up like trying and like seeing this guy who could not be more different personality wise have to help him and be in that situation and have that conflict. Like, I wish that it was just a road movie without this, like my dad died and my stepmom is evil and my brother is, I didn't need any of that. And I really wish it wasn't in the movie. And I feel like the first two thirds of the movie, I was more into it. And then it stops being so funny because they have to like wrap up all this plot. And then like, it becomes less about funny sequences and funny jokes and more about let's wrap this up because we've now like uh oh we have all this plot before the end of the movie to like tie up in a bow there's um, like 20 minutes that are just revolving around brake pads like <laughs> like the, the triumph of this movie is like I will buy brake pads from you and it's like yay but that would have been fine if it was it was yeah. just it should have just been about like the the character between Tommy and uh Richard and and just another thing I'm really I really don't like catchphrases that are used like over and over and over in a movie. Like, I could handle one ho- holy shnikes, but not ten of them. <laughs> you know, or son of a, he says that over he and says over. son of a ten times in this movie like i wow. like give me give me two <laughs> you yeah. know one one or is rule of threes one even. is establishes like three, and maybe. one is a callback and that's you know and it was just it was too much so overall i don't think i'll be watching this movie again but i felt like i was in for a bad time and i and i didn't hate it so yeah that's that's you know kind of in some ways where I ended up. I mean, I, I don't think this is an original movie at all. <laughs> like, the the Road movie was a well-worn genre by this time. And this absolutely does pull plot points from a bunch of other movies, especially Road movies and buddy comedies. And it pretty broadly rips off planes, trains, and automobiles, which I didn't see until well after I first saw Tommy Boy. I first saw this, it would have been either on cable or VHS or something. It It's not one that I would have been able to see in the theater or allowed to see at that age. But it was, it would definitely have been something that like, given my love for Farley on SNL at the time, I would have looked for like on HBO or Showtime, something like that. 
And again, though it's not original, I think it's so funny, and I think it's very genuinely and organically sweet, which is super rare for comedies, especially super rare for comedies in the 1990s. And I think it's better made than it needed to be. Like, there are genuinely beautiful shots in this movie. Like, a lot of the, like, filming of the road trip stuff, I think, is very well done. Also, one of my big abiding sentiments from this is just, rest in peace, mid-budget studio comedies. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they just don't get made anymore. And I think there's so much that's lost from comedy, especially from voices, you know, not necessarily as big as Chris Farley's, but comedic performers at that level of talent. Like, I really do think if there were a functioning film industry right now, like, Kristen Wiig should be in a lot more fucking 10 to 15 or $20 million feature films. Like, that's the kind of place where a performer that completely bonkers, but also, like, with that much of a range, could really make a great meal out of comedic premises. And it's unfortunate that just the whole business has moved away from that entirely. I really think that Chris Farley and David Spade are a classic comedic duo. They are oil and vinegar. They're Abbott and Costello. Yeah, I just think that that polar opposite, both in their physicality and in their worldview as performers, lends itself so well to them being paired up. And I mean, David Spade has talked a lot in the years since Farley's passing. How about like, you know, obviously they both had different things that they wanted to do in their careers. And they they weren't, you know, like necessarily the very best of lifelong friends in every way. But like he would have been perfectly content if they had just, you know, kept making buddy comedies and kind of every couple years do You know, in a lot of ways, kind of what Sandler does now in terms Mm -hmm. of just like making a movie every few years with his friends. I agree with you, Becky, entirely about like the Bo Derek and Rob Lowe weird Mm -hmm. mommy son sexy subplot. But I love Rob Lowe's entrance in this movie. He is coming off a bus and he punches a kid through the window of the bus and then he drinks an entire carton of chocolate milk and throws it into an open (laughs) stroller. Don't remember that. (laughs) Literally, that's the only thing that stood out to me. The rest of it was just that weird awkwardness of their kind of dynamic between each other. Yeah, I was really glad to see Rob Lowe because I didn't know he was in this movie at all. And also true for many of the other movies that we've talked about. But like, I didn't know I was a big fan of Rob Lowe, but I've been very glad to see him in all these movies. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, yeah, his like the the storyline wasn't that good but like when he was on screen like he was making the most of it like there's a scene where his shirt gets sucked off in in oh, yeah. a by a pneumatic tube <laughs> yeah and the way he plays that is really funny cuz he's just he's kind of just like acts like he doesn't notice that it happened and and i did think there's a runner through the movie where he just is a total klutz and just keeps getting injured in increasingly ridiculous Mm -hmm. ways and just getting shamed and embarrassed like having his shirt ripped off in that way and yeah I totally agree that he absolutely made the most of it and again it just left me like really wanting Rob Lowe to do more funny performances now I mean I did think he was very funny on Parks and Recreation but I think part of the success of Rob Lowe's comedic performances is how seriously he approaches those characters and how he never even gets anywhere close to winking at the camera even once yeah um i also love and have always loved david spade um the sardonic sarcastic snide style of humor um has appealed to me since the very first time i encountered it like when i started being a comedy fan like shortly before kind of this age when these came out but david spade was 
really one of my first big entry points into that entire approach to comedy. I remember as a kid, uh, kind of liking David Spade's character more than Chris Farley's. I think I, you know, very much appreciate them, you know, equally, if not kind of love Chris Farley a bit more in this movie, especially just because I feel the whole movie is riding on him. And I do think he shows a lot of range that he never really had the chance to explore on SNL. And I do love both the Brian Dennehy casting of it all, their interplay with each other and the way that Farley's energy is at a 10 at the start of this movie, but life knocks him down and it kind of threatens to like totally knock that spark out of him. And I, I love the way that the movie kind of deals with that and, and the circumstances of the plot force him out of his comfort zone. And yeah, I, I was just really enjoying the road trip element of that movie and that kind of main plot of it. I did not know that Brian Dennehy's character was going to die because I didn't really know or remember what this movie was about. So that actually kind of shocked me and like I felt emotional for that loss for him because even when he first has a heart attack, I was like, oh, okay, so maybe the rest of the movie is in like the hospital and so it's up to Chris Farley to like do all the business stuff. But, you know, because it felt like too nice of a relationship to have like that kind of big of a blow and like a comedy that I thought was going to be really dumb. So I thought that was a, a good touch. And then the scenes after that where he's mourning his father um are like there's a touch of like genuine drama there like the scene where he's in the boat with julie warner who is an employee of his father's company and kind of a love interest as the movie goes on hey your cell is limp like your dick watch your language in front of the lady punk jeez (laughs) you were saying hey gilligan did you eat the skipper you better pray to the god of skinny punks that this wind doesn't pick up because I'll come over there and jam an oar up your ass. Jeepers creepers. Those guys keep interrupting us. I'm sorry about that. You were saying about the... Um... Hey, lady, look out. There's a fat whale on your boat. Yeah, free willy. <laughs> Listen up, you little spazoids. I know where you live and I've seen where you sleep. I swear to everything holy that your mothers will cry when they see what I've done to you. I was just kidding. I have no idea where they live. That was awesome. I thought she was really good in this movie and very similar to Brian Dennehy is like, it seems like the more obvious choice would have been to have her be kind of sneering at him and being like, oh, like this guy, like, you know, have him hit on her and and she's not interested and then in the end comes around. But instead she's like very genuinely warm and nice and likes him all the way through, Mm -hmm. which was just such a much better choice and, and made her character just feel like much more like a real person than like the typical like kind of throwaway love interest in a lot of comedies. I I like the scene on the boat because it starts off with like Farley's going to do his thing where he yells. Yes. But then she joins him and yelling. She ends up yelling in, in a more terrifying, violent way than he does. Yeah. So I felt like that was a good way to like get your standard what you want out of a Chris Farley movie, but then have it work within the movie with character. 
Yes. Um, oh, yeah. And then yeah. it turns it into like a really sweet moment of connection between them. Like, I really liked the kind of romantic subplot in this. It felt organic, like we were saying with his relationship with Brian Dennehy, like with his father. I like wanted those two people to be together. Like, I, I liked the person that Tommy Boy was around her. Like, and and again, it's like he, he his performance has to anchor that. And without him nailing that performance, that would have felt like a complete unwarranted, unearned shift in his personality. But in this, it's kind of effortless. Like, he really had a lot of range as a performer, and I think this was a chance to show it. I have to mention that there's a scene in the movie where there's a woman in a bikini at a motel pool, oh. and, and Farley walks by and is like, where's the weight room? Like, trying to impress her. And David Spade is upstairs, like, jerking off, basically. Literally. And that is Chris <laughs> Farley's girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Which I find really funny in retrospect, because while watching it, I was like, why Why is there nudity in a movie like this? We don't need a nudity. And then, I don't know, I found that really funny when I found out that was who he's actually dating. Yeah, and apparently Farley was very nervous about that, and as was she. And, like, apparently she wasn't actually told beforehand that she was supposed to take all her clothes off. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it this was kind of part of some of the interviews I watched in preparation for that. And and it left me with a bit of a bad taste in my mouth knowing the truth of that, but it was at least like he was at least very like comforting to her and like made all the other crew leave and all that kind of stuff to at least make it, you know, a slightly less daunting experience. To round out our Tommy Boy discussion, I just wanted to highlight some of the best sequences and jokes. Uh, you know, the action set pieces in this. One of my favorites is, and I think obviously one of the most kind of iconic lines from this is fat guy in a little coat. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's pretty great. It's the way he does it. Like, it, it's so sweet. Like, he has just such a like, oh, I want to please you kind of. And, and he's doing it to make David Spade laugh. So I, I think, <laughs> like, on paper, I'm not sure that, like, that joke seems that funny to me. But the way he performs it is really wonderful. And this was literally a bit that Chris Farley would do to David Spade almost every week in their office at SNL. And David Spade talks about, like, how many jackets he lost. <laughs> Because every time Chris Farley would eventually, like, just even just leaning over would split the jacket wide open. It, it had that feel to it as something that they had kind of done before. Like, I, I, I strongly suspected it was not made up for this movie. There's one I love when Richard tries to open the door to his car and the door comes completely off because Tommy was trying to pump gas. And in the process, he like put the car into reverse and hyper extended the door, like basically mostly breaking it off. I liked the through line of uh, Richard really caring about his car in the beginning. And then the M&Ms fall into like the vents. And then by the end of the movie, the car is like total beyond belief. Yeah, so I wanted to highlight because the the door falling off happened to director Peter Seagal. And then later, the car hood flying open while Tommy's driving on the freeway happened in real life to writer Fred Wolf. And so they wow. were, like I kind of said earlier, like they literally just kind of took bits and pieces of their real life and little jokes they had with each other that they thought were funny inside jokes and just kind of threw them into the stew. Based on a true story, who knew? David Spade's housekeeping. That was also an actual prank that David Spade would play on Chris Farley during the filming of this movie. And they incorporated it into a scene. 
it's movies like this where I want to see the shooting script. <laughs> like, what did that look like versus oh, God, the, what we got? It was this big. <laughs> The cow tipping scene was actually pitched by Rob Lowe. I absolutely remember this scene. Tommy has a line in it that I really love. That's, I can't believe you've never been cow tipping before. Get ready to live. <laughs> <laughs> There's the the pitch when they're doing a sales pitch and Tommy goes completely ham in this meeting with a potential new client. Tommy smashes all the owner's model cars and lights one on fire on the guy's desk trying to sell the new Callahan brake pads by describing what would happen if he went with the competition. Our new brake pads are really cool. You're not even going to believe it. Like, um, let's say you're driving along the road with your family, and you're driving along, la 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 woo! And then all of a sudden, there's a truck tire in the middle of the road, and you hit the brakes. Whoa, that was close. <laughs> now let's see what happens when you're driving with the other guy's brake pads. You're driving along, you're driving along, and all of a sudden the kids are yelling from the back seat, I gotta go to the bathroom, Daddy! Not now, damn it! Truck tire! I can't stop! Help! There's a cliff! And your family's screaming, Oh my God, we're burning alive! No, I can't feel my legs! In comes a meat wagon! And the medic gets out and says, oh my god. New guy's in the corner puking his guts out. All because you want to save a couple extra pennies. And to me, it doesn't... Get out. Now. Sir. And he was probably about to make the sale until he ruined the guy's uh, cherished models. Yeah. Yeah, and and of course, it's like, in, in real life, I don't think there are any brake pads that are known by their brand name. <laughs> uh, brake pads are not and have never been a thing. I need new brake pads, and I'm going to go with Callahan. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know, like, maybe someday it'll become a trend in Los Angeles, and lick cupcakes and cronuts before them, brake pads will be the hot new item. And then, of course, there is the deer sequence. I liked the psycho deer. I thought that was a good uh, set piece. <laughs> and the deer that they hit with their car, they put in the back of their car. Poor choice. Very poor choice. I, I think they're hoping to bring it to, like, animal control or something. And it seemingly comes back from the dead and destroys the entire interior of the car. I think it's just inherently hilarious on its own, but I also find it especially hilarious because it's clearly like a fake animatronic or just puppet of a deer that's doing all the destruction of the inside of the car, and then it cuts directly away from that to a live deer standing on the car. <laughs> Fun deer facts. It took the film crew five weeks just to get the shot of the deer standing on the car. How? They gave the car to a trainer who fed a deer and let it eat and poop in and around the car for a month <laughs> so the deer could get used to it before they could bring in cameras and get the shot they needed. I guess that's why they were late getting back to SNL. <laughs> they were all just standing there waiting for a deer. <laughs> And thankfully, it was a one-and-done shot because all of the lights of the crew and the production scared the shit out of the deer, and it ran off. There's also the nice scene with Helen the Waitress. I like that one, too. Yeah, that's another kind of sweet scene, I think, at least, where he's, like, really opening up. And there's a sort of, like, sarcastic waitress that is not taking his shit when he requests that she reopen the kitchen for him. And when he opens up to her about how bad of a salesman he is, she ends up kind of reading between the lines, I think, and seeing 
that he could use a nice, like... <laughs> just use some chicken wings. That's right, yeah. It's so, a boy who could use some chicken wings. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, like, a, a cute little scene. Helen, we're both in sales. Let me tell you why I suck as a salesman. Let's say I go into some guy's office. Let's say he's even remotely interested in buying something. Well, then I get all excited. I'm like, Jojo, the idiot circus boy with a pretty new pet. The pet is my possible sale. Oh, my pretty little pet. I love you. So I stroke it, and I pet it, and I massage it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love my little naughty pet. You're naughty. And then I take my naughty pet, and I go... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I killed it. I killed my sale. <laughs> That's when I blow it. That's when people like us have got to forge ahead, Helen. Am I right? God, you're sick. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll go turn the fryers back on and throw some wings in for you. Hey, thanks, Helen. Tell me likey. Tell me want wingy. Also, did anyone enjoy the moment where Rob Lowe pees on a transformer and gets electrocuted and thrown like 30 feet? <laughs> I actually did because I just did not see it coming. And it's right after he says something like, that guy's an idiot talking about Tommy. And then... Yeah, so he gets super drunk and goes to literally take a piss on a Callahan Company sign. And he turns around to talk to uh, Bo Derek, his mommy lover. And his pee stream <laughs> migrates lover. over to this nearby electrical equipment, which throws out a shower of sparks and a shockwave that throws Rob Lowe like 15 feet away while electrocuting him. I did some research, and apparently it is theoretically possible to get electrocuted by micturating upon an electrified fence or super high voltage equipment like this. But you need to be very close to the point that your pee is still a steady stream and not just broken up into droplets. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> so just in, case, just in case anyone out there listening is planning on whizzing on an electric fence, don't. don't. Isn't that what Ren and Stimpy said? It is. Very educational. I'd like to point out that when they first see Bo Derek come out of the pool, he says, Dad, she's like a 10. That's she, a good one. She was in the movie 10. And the that's pool. the scene. Like, <laughs> her coming out of the pool is, like, what that movie is so famous for. Right. Too. So, yeah. Uh, I think more movies should end with a Dennehy ghost breeze. <laughs> As the one that and on the boat is summoned to to blow his sailboat in the final scene, that's kind of touching. Ryan Dennehy, Ghost Breeze, words to live by, and that'll bring us to Black Sheep. She's not born in the USA. You gotta fight for your right to vote. One small step for man, one giant. I have a dream. Power to the people.
Directed by Penelope Spheris, written by Fred Wolf, released on February 2nd, 1996, Black Sheep earned $32.4 million at the box office, very similar performance, against an unknown budget. That's rumored to be around half of the $20 million spent to make Tommy Boy. I literally could not find budget figures on this anywhere. Usually it would be more expensive the next one. I don't, this seems like a movie that ballooned out of control. Yeah, it didn't balloon into control. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Black Sheep was critically savaged, even worse than Tommy Boy. Steve Persall at the Tampa Bay Times said, There is some glint of acting potential in Farley's puffy face, but this movie doesn't mine it. Director Penelope Spheris was well prepared for the maturity level here after she directed The Little Rascals last year, yet seems content to place Farley and Spade in the same situations she crafted in Wayne's World. Farley would be wise to be more selective in his career or else he'll wind up as a comic prop in insurance commercials. I don't know what it is about film critics that just reference insurance all the time. Siskel and Ebert gave it two very big thumbs way down. A brief plot synopsis, a gubernatorial candidate's fail brother becomes a massive campaign liability, so he gets paired with a wise-cracking, ambitious campaign staffer on a mission to keep him out of the public eye. Sheep facts. <laughs> Black Sheep was very much rushed into production after the success of Tommy Boy. Director Penelope Spheris is a lifelong friend of Lauren Michaels, and she directed Wayne's World to great success, so she was a pretty understandable choice to direct this. However, Penelope Spheris famously and loudly hated David Spade's comedy oh. and intentionally filmed the two separately in a way that physically prevented them from playing off of each other. Spheris admits as much, saying, My problem with Black Sheep was that then and to this day, I find Chris Farley absolutely, brilliantly, hilariously funny. I don't think I've ever even smiled at anything David Spade's ever done. Chris was lovable and positive, and David was so bitter and negative. You take your pick. Spheris has said many times over the years how much she hated the script and disliked the writer Fred Wolf, whom she fired three separate times over the course of production. Each time, Wolf got rehired either by Farley or by Lorne Michaels. Kind of a pattern with Penelope Spheris clashing with people on these movies. Associate producer Eric Newman also noted the tension on set. Actors need rules, and those rules need to come from the director. Penelope clearly didn't get David, and she really allowed him to meander. Chris Farley alone is the comedy team of Costello and Costello. You need the sharp-tongued straight man. You can pretend that you're just making a Chris Farley movie, but you're not. It's a Chris Farley-David Spade movie. David Spade has said many times since that he wishes they'd pulled the plug on Black Sheep even from the start of production. Even beyond Penelope Spheris' efforts to keep them apart, Chris Farley himself was at a period in his own life where he was sick of being Fat Boy Falls Down and wanted to make the movie much more dramatic, pushing Penelope Spheris to try to make all of his scenes more dramatic as they went along. So, did any of us see Black Sheep near when it came out, and what did we think of it now? I did not see it then. And did I really see it now? <laughs> <laughs> One could be forgiven for thinking that you had not. I was just because the chase is not good. <laughs> it's really not good. I lost interest very quickly. It just kept going downhill. Quite literally. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> My first thought was, I've never actually seen Gary Busey in a movie. <laughs> I only know him from like clips from The Soup or... Or, like, just pop culture. From people making fun of Gary Busey yeah, or I've never him in commercials. I've seen him act. Oh, oh, buddy, are you okay? I'm not that far from dragging you out of the car and beating you into dust. You should work up to that. Kind of leaves you nowhere to go. 
I can go to your mama's and start a small fire in her panties. Now, are you ready to get out of the car? Oh, no, Come on, sir. Come on. You know what? That was my fault, and I'm really sorry. Here, I got something for you. It's kind of a souvenir. Oh, here it is. he's unnerving (laughs) i did not like looking at him yeah now you get why he's typecast as that yeah i mean that was the role but so much so that i'm like this man wandered on the set like get him off the set (laughs) i don't think it's funny to see the brother of a politician do things (laughs) who cares about the brother of somebody that's not even elected (laughs) who cares about this stupid election uh well I mean, Republicans care about Joe Biden's son a lot, apparently. But that's stupid. Like, exactly. like the, the brother of a person who isn't even elected. Why couldn't Farley have been the campaign manager and David Spade is the politician? Or the candidate. Or vice versa. Or for some right. reason, Chris Farley needs to get elected and David Spade is hired as the campaign manager. Like, that right. makes more sense. Like, I don't care about... That has stakes to it. I don't care about the fuck-up brother of somebody who isn't even in office. Just the premise alone I thought was bad. And it's just this movie felt like so many random gags that I honestly forgot it was about politics. And it was just like... (laughs) Yeah. Before I knew it, he's rolling down a hill and then he's like at some concert. Like, I was like, what is happening? Like, them getting a bat out of a cabin isn't inherently funny. Like, I didn't understand the comedy of this movie, quote unquote. I just, I thought it was truly misguided and bad. Yeah. And I'll I'll let other people talk now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, right off the bat, this movie is a fucking mess. It's beyond a mess. And I mean, it's clear that with Tommy Boy, they went in with something less than a completed script. But there was at least the commitment to kind of see it through and, and you know, like, fashion a coherent story out of what they were doing. But with this, it feels like one or both of them, like, walked off the set halfway through production, and so they just, like, cut together everything they shot <laughs> and released it. Like, it is... Such a mess. Like, Mikey, uh, Chris Farley's character, has more jobs than anyone I've ever known, like, in the first 10 minutes of this movie. He's, like, a campaign worker for his brother, a youth football coach, and a car mechanic all at once. Pick a lane at all. Pick any lane. The plot of this movie that is supposedly political is so insanely convoluted. Like, it revolves around a photographer extorting the current governor and also trying to fuck over Donnelly, who's the the competing candidate for governor, by framing Chris Farley's character for burning down the rec center? Yeah. Where he's a football coach? None of this. And the arson itself was actually committed by the governor's large adult sons? It beyond makes no sense. Chris, what'd you think? Boo, boo, black sheep. (laughs) Have you any laughs? No, sir. No, sir. Not even one half. (laughs) (laughs) Please communicate only in nursery rhymes for the rest of this podcast. I have long suspected that this would not be a film for me (laughs) since I first saw the poster in 1996, probably. So in our last episode on Mike Myers, I watched the movies chronologically, starting with Wayne's World. And it was diminishing returns for like Wayne's World to Wayne's World 2 to So I Married an Axe Murder. All movies that I had either not seen or not seen in a long time. So very much like this. So this time I was like, I'm going to try and do the opposite and start with the presumable worst, which was Black Sheep. So I watched this first. (laughs) And that was rough. (laughs) Yeah. Because this was my reintroduction to Chris Farley. Mm. So I am going to quit the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We 
didn't do this to you. <laughs> it was nice knowing you, honestly. Taking inspiration from Saturday Night Live performers like Mike Myers and Chris Farley and Adam Sandler, I'm going to quit my day job <laughs> and pursue a big screen comedy career because <laughs> if this is the bar, I can I can certainly pass it. Yeah, you can clear that. This movie is the opposite of funny. <laughs> not just, like, not funny, but, like, anti-funny. Like, I actually feel like this movie took laughter away from me <laughs> for a period. Yes. It's like the anti-matter of comedy. Yes. Yeah. So I might be laughing at things today, but I'm not because this movie depleted those resources so badly. It's just a black hole, black sheep, black hole, that sucks all mirth in and nothing comes back out. There are no jokes in this movie. Not really. Like, there are situations that you can imagine kind of being funny in some context, maybe. Like, a bat in a cabin. But nothing funny happens. Yeah. So it's weird. And that's how the whole movie is. There's no, like, build to anything. It feels really random. It feels like a Three Stooges movie down two stooges. It's like one <laughs> stooge. <laughs> yes. It's like they don't even try to set up and pay off. Like, they just don't even attempt joke construction. <laughs> so here's my issue with particularly this movie, but also, like, parts of Tommy Boy, is that Chris Farley is known for his physical comedy, but I feel like, especially in Black Sheep, it's not fun watching a stunt double of Chris Farley roll down a mountain. That like, was him. That was him? That was not a stunt double. Okay, Bex. well, I stand by this. <laughs> That there's so many quick cuts that you can't appreciate any of the physical comedy. Like, that's why I think on SNL, he is so funny with his physical comedy because you're seeing it happen. Like, And it's live in the moment. It's live in the moment. But even if I'm watching it, like, on a best of decades later, there's something to be said about how you present physical comedy and just seeing the full body. You're not cutting away. It's different than if you're just, like, falling down a mountain, but there's, like, a shot here, shot here, shot here. Like, even fat guy in a little coat cuts from the front of him to the back and it's just not as funny as if you just like saw it all happen live at once it's the editing of it that is tricky with physical comedy and i think that it's more apparently bad in black sheep that there's just nothing that he's doing with his body in black sheep is funny just because of the way they're shooting it like it's not shot well to set that up for success when they're also just relying on that for laughs. Like, I, I feel like this happens a lot with comedy is like, you don't really have a script and you just expect the performer to magically make things funny. Like, you're just like, oh, okay, well, we'll write this and then they'll make it funny in the moment. And it's like, but yeah. it's not a funny setup. Like, it's just like seeing someone roll down a hill is not inherently funny. Like, right. you have to film it in a funny way and it has to like in some way speak to, like, the character or the story, like, matter in some way. Like, what happens when he is finally down the mountain? Does he say something? And how are you shooting it so that it's, like, presented in the funniest way? Or, like, are people watching, you know, like, you could get reaction shots that would be, like, make it funnier because people are reacting to it. It's just, like, it's really, like, clumsily, <laughs> literally clumsy, but also just clumsily executed. Yeah, and Chris, the phenomenon you're talking about, I think, kind of defined, oh, the last probably 15 or 20 years or so of Robin Williams' career, where he was handed just escalatingly horrible scripts. I'm not talking out of my ass here. I interned for a company that made License to Wed, which is one of mm -hmm. so many appropriately forgotten Robin Williams vehicles. But literally, the dictate on set was just to let Robin be Robin, uh, mm -hmm. because they all knew how terrible the script was. The fact that this movie like already leaned into that so much and thought that it could just kind of rest on the laurels of Chris Farley being Chris Farley is sad and unfortunate. Overall, I think it's a mess, but like in particular, I think it fails on basically every element of it that could have been 
of virtue. For me, really kind of the only funny thing in this whole movie is Grant Hesloff plays Mikey's best friend, who's a cop. And Grant Heslaw's character does literally anything Mikey wants and eventually just gives him his cop car, which is nitro boosted. In other words, it's like boosted with nitrous oxide and like a turbocharger. So literally the only funny thing in this, I think, is when Mike and Steve, which is David Spade's character, are driving the cop car to the campaign victory rally and they break the nitro line going into the cop car, getting both Mike and Steve high as fuck unintentionally. But this map is heavy. It's got all those... Robes on it. Rogues? Roots? <laughs> I can't I can't I can't say that word. Roads. Rouds. Rowads. That's a total weird word, isn't it? <laughs> that is a freaky word. <laughs> <laughs> very, very freaky. <laughs> I'm stoned. So are you. Rowwoods. Damn it, the nitrous oxide's leaking into the car. Oh man. Oh, we gotta we gotta maintain. I think you just drive the speed limit. We're gonna be cool. Alright. Everything's cool. I'll just go to the speed limit. 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 <laughs> That's another one of those freaky words. Limit. And it's... That scene's over soon. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a long sequence or an act of this movie. I felt bad for Chris Farley. I felt bad for everyone involved in the making of this movie because it's just clear the the lack of any kind of captain at the helm who was interested in really making the thing work at all. Yeah, that's really weird. It makes me have a lot less respect for Penelope's Furious, quite honestly. I'd hate to be the co-lead of a movie and my director not liking my comedy. Like, all of it seems like there was no way this was going to succeed. Yeah, it was crazy to me learning that both of these movies only had partial scripts at best when going into production. But it's especially crazier in retrospect that, you know, Tommy Boy actually works even given that. And a lot more, I think, predictable and understandable why Black Sheep fails in all the ways that it fails. But I expected there to be, like, even some more accidentally funny things. I'm mad that people got paid for this. Like, because it's just <laughs> so lazy. Like, there's just no attempt at anything. Like, Tim Matheson is 17 years older than Chris Farley and is playing his brother. And there's no explanation for that. And it's just, like, such a lazy... They don't look anything alike. They don't seem mm -hmm. anything alike. Bear no resemblance. They basically spend none of the movie together. Exactly. With each other. There's no relationship. I'm like, why don't you just cast Sidney Poitier as his brother? Like, <laughs> guess who's coming to vote? I mean, that would at least be funny. Again, like, have one of them, like Spade or Farley. Why have the brother character at all? Making it almost worse. Penelope Spheris has since said in interviews that one of the only reasons she took this movie is because she got paid something on the order of two or three million dollars out of the unknown budget of this movie, possibly somewhere around a third of it, paid Penelope Spheris to basically forcibly separate the two leads of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, get your check, girl. I'm but sure still. that's why everyone did this movie, because there's nothing about it that has potential. Just even the idea of a black sheep is like, a black sheep stands out from a flock of 
other sheep, but there's no family here. Like, it's the mm-hmm. one brother. I feel like it would make a lot more sense if it was, like, a father or something who was running and it was the son or something. And it was, like, he was, like, the black sheep of the whole family. Or, like, the other sons, and I'm assuming some, okay, just siblings, are, you know, very high up. Like, maybe they're, like, the mayor of a town or the governor of a town, you know, like, and he's the black sheep because you can't do that. Mm-hmm. The very, like, title of this sets up something that the movie doesn't even really bother with. He's just, like, not his brother, but, like, it's not necessarily being a black sheep. But, I mean, Penelope Sphere sounds like probably didn't take this for the right reasons, didn't really execute it that well. She had a weird turn in her career. Like, she also did Little Rascals, Beverly Hillbillies, and Senseless in the 90s. What's Senseless? Another David Spade movie. How did that happen? Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) Also, I have to fault the writing of this movie too. Fred Wolf's other credits are Joe Dirt, Dickie Roberts, former child star, Little Nicky, Without a Paddle, Grown Ups, Grown Ups 2, and Joe Dirt 2. So I see a pattern there. (laughs) But also, it sounds like this was rushed into production. So it's like it never had a chance to be good because the writer probably just submitted a first draft and they're like, well, we got to shoot it because Farley and Spade, the end. If I'm remembering correctly, he submitted the draft on the day that production was set to start. Something like that. I mean, exactly. You're not wrong in in getting that sentiment from the overall movie. Yeah, I think most times that movies are bad, it's the producers want something specific that probably wouldn't work, but the writer has to do it, or just everything is completely rushed and there's no time to actually develop a script. Because I think most people that write scripts professionally are talented. But how talented can you be when you're given two weeks and then you have to like shit out a draft? I mean, more than this, honestly. <laughs> like this, was, You could give me an hour and I could do better than this. But we don't know what the produ- production know, constraints were. This didn't have have a chance. At the end, he holds David Spade at gunpoint for no reason. Like, that especially. Like, it, it feels like mm-hmm. they're just copying Tommy Boy when he does the, like, yes. accidental, like, robbing of a bank thing. But, like, here, it's just like, this isn't necessary to prove his point. Like, it's yeah. just weird. It rips off all the plot points of Tommy Boy, but with literally no characters, no jokes, and no real action set pieces to speak of, really. This movie is a weird Washington State obsession, which I'm not sure if it's just because I'm from Washington State, but like... (laughs) That's the one thing that really stands out to me is there are so many name drops of places and, like, things in Washington State. Like, all the news stations are accurate. There's, like, all these, like, signs <laughs> of places that are real. And, and it's all constantly in dialogue. And I'm just like, like, if one thing was done, he did his research. on like, Maybe he's from Washington State. I don't know. But I was just like, every single place they named, I was like, I know where that is. I know where that is. So mm-hmm. it was, like, very bizarrely accurate in that one sense and yet so lazy in everything else. <laughs> That's so weird. I had no idea. They spent all their time researching the history of Seattle. And then he had one hour to write the rest of the plot. He's like, oh, shit. He was, he was procrastinating. He was moonlighting from his usual job, writing the Atlas. <laughs> so the main thing that I noticed about this movie, and again, like, I saw this one first and really did associate it with Chris Farley's brand of comedy before I watched Tommy Boy and I watched more of the SNL stuff and got a little bit more beyond this, but it feels like it has more in common with body horror than comedy. Like, it's all chaos, not comedy. Like, there's so many scenes in this where he's just in pain. Yeah. There's, like, car crashes. He's, like, slamming his his fingers in in the trunk. And I just found it, like, deeply unpleasant to watch that. Injuries can be funny if in the right setup, but like an injury is not inherently funny, I don't think. And in these movies, I just found it like so not funny. And it went back to me feeling sad about Chris Farley a little bit. 
there's a masochism in this comedy, which often is in the verbal calling out of like how fat he is and, and that he wants to call that out, you know, himself. But, you know, I think he's doing that because that's something that bothers him, you know, it, and it makes other people feel like they're invited to like make fun of him as well. But I'm not necessarily sure that's the intent from him. And I think from what I heard in, in some of the interviews in the documentary, like that kind of stuff would actually like really bother him. And so just this like physical torture of him really bothered me in this movie without like the sweetness of Tommy Boy to balance it out or any kind of like story that that movie had. It's just 90 minutes of punishment. And it also feels like it kind of stems from this overall negative cultural feeling that we have like a negative attitude about being overweight that like there's this sense that like because he's overweight he deserves to be punished and he's like kind of taken on that mentality and like that's why we're supposed to find this funny even though clearly we didn't find this funny but like that's what these gags rely on like people have other kind of physical types i don't think you would put them through like all the physical torturous gags here but i think because he's larger like we're supposed to think like oh he can take it or that like there's something kind of like okay about him being like in pain that just really really rubbed me the wrong way beyond just not finding this movie funny like finding it kind of disgusting a little bit after the success of tommy boy chris farley kind of got lost in his own fame which is what happens when you get super duper famous and you aren't an emotionally grounded person chris relapsed on alcohol just before black sheep came out he was sent to a few more rehabs and he was sober for his next movie project beverly hills ninja in 1997 which was also a mild hit his only other lead role in a film was in Almost Heroes, which was an infamous flop, and a role in Norm MacDonald's Dirty Work, and both those movies were only released posthumously in 1998. Chris Farley went through 17 rehabs in the course of his life. Wow. Most in the course of just three years. Was it just for alcohol? No. No. I'll, and I'll get to that really shortly. But he never found any self-esteem he never believed in himself or in his talent, and he never believed he was a good person. Alcohol was his first drug of choice, but it was eventually joined by cocaine and opiates like heroin. The last time Bob Odenkirk saw him, Chris Farley was in a limo with the exact kind of people that Odenkirk didn't want around Chris Farley. Parked outside a Saturday Night Live reunion event of some sort. And it was clear that Farley wasn't going to come in because he was nervous about everyone he loved seeing him off the rails. Odenkirk went out back behind the venue and saw Chris briefly, and he was beyond totally out of it and worse than Odenkirk had ever seen him. Bob Odenkirk's own father was an alcoholic. And he had the same very sickening feeling of inevitability, knowing how this story was going to play out, as he says, in the corniest goddamn fucking way, so that even Chris could have told you, I'm going to die at 33, when Belushi died, same age. And Chris Farley idolized John Belushi. In late October 1997, Farley went back to host Saturday Night Live for the first and only time. And it's clear, watching any clips from this episode, how far gone he was. It's really sad. Like, I watched some of his monologue he's he's always known as being like a big guy but it's like clear he gained a lot of weight he just looks very unhealthy not just weight wise but like sweaty and his voice was hoarse he was slurring and forgetting yeah. all his lines he was really hoarse even in the monologue and though the audience clearly loved that he was there farley was generally just no longer able to keep up with the pace of that show or with the pace of his own performing style. And stories have come out in the years since from other cast members who basically just put it that way, that like he was really far gone and everyone there knew it. 
In the months after that, in 1997, Chris Farley was reportedly beyond even what all his friends had ever seen before. He was spending time with a call girl in Wisconsin who got him his drugs of choice whenever he wanted. She accompanied him back to his apartment at the Hancock Tower in Chicago, where they got loaded up on speedballs, which is cocaine plus heroin, so loaded that Chris passed out. This friend of his took a photo of him at 3 a.m. lying passed out on the floor of his apartment, thinking it would be a funny moment that they could laugh at later. It turned out those were some of the last minutes of his life. On December 18, 1997, Chris Farley died at the age of 33. His funeral was held in Madison near his childhood home. Farley's comedic partner, David Spade, ultimately didn't attend Chris Farley's funeral because he was so emotionally devastated that he felt like he couldn't keep himself together there. Once he was buried, and after the funeral, his colleagues and co-workers learned that Chris had something of a secret second life, but in the opposite way of how secret second lives usually go. It turns out Chris Farley had basically gone to Mass every week, the whole time he had been a comedic performer in the National Spotlight, and he had secretly been volunteering for years and years at soup kitchens, feeding the homeless, giving his money away to random homeless people on the street, performing at children's hospitals and at nursing homes, bringing joy to kids with cancer and to the elderly. Basically, he'd made a total secret out of the fact that he'd spent much of his free time as a performer performing acts of total service for other people, out of his religious convictions and out of the joy that he knew he could bring to others. Bob Odenkirk is quoted as saying something I loved about Farley as well. You did know him. Everyone who saw him perform got a little piece of his soul. That was the thing about Chris that was very special and undeniable and made his potential even so much greater than everything he'd done that we can see on tape. I remember, I think this was in the I Am Chris Farley documentary, that somebody remembers him saying, when I make it big, like, some people are like, I'm going to get this thing, this house, this whatever. But like the thing that Chris wanted was like, oh, man, when I when I make it big, I'm going to go to all the hospitals and cheer up kids. He was like excited to get big enough that he would walk into a children's hospital and they would recognize him. And that stuck with me because yeah. like it's clearly like he is a good person with a good, kind heart and just had his own demons and his own, you know, self-esteem issues and didn't love himself enough as much as he loved the audiences that he entertained. It's it's such a shame because he seems like such a like a good, kind hearted person. Yeah. And I mean, even even as a kid, I remember the day he died. I remember the news reports and I felt really, really bad about that. Not as bad as I felt when Phil Hartman died, because Phil Hartman was one of my, like, childhood comedy heroes. Well, that's also, I mean, they're yeah, both and tragic. That was, that was a, its own, like, insanely tragic story. But it made me really sad. And and I think there was a weird fucked up way that I also kind of thought it was inevitable. Because even as a kid at the time, I knew he was big into drugs and alcohol. You know, and that that whole idea of, like... Chris Farley's like the one man party, I think in a lot of ways was applied to him and expected of him, but it didn't really comprise who he was as a person. And that clearly wasn't his nature, you know, like exactly like you're talking about, like the what he actually wanted out of being famous. And yeah, just learning that now made it exceptionally sad that he died when he did. The fact that he was 33 never sunk in with me because he always was playing these characters like Matt Foley, who seemed much older, like very middle-aged kind of yeah. men and like very adult kind of men. So I never really thought about his age. Obviously, now I have a different relationship to the age 33 <laughs> than I did when I was 
14 when he died. I also remember, like, finding it sad, but I didn't have that much of a personal connection to Chris Farley. And, you know, at the time, I was really in the mentality of say no to drugs, you know, and it's like when when someone would overdose, I just didn't understand that's its own kind of tragedy and, and that there's a lot that goes into that. And that it's not just like, oh, he did something bad and therefore, like, mm-hmm. kind of deserved. Right. Not deserved it, but, you know, that that it was kind of less tragic somehow than, like, Princess Di, who died, you know, a few months before this. And John Denver and Notorious B.I.G. were also, like, the same year. So it was, like, this year of kind of these big deaths. And by the time, I think this was the last of them, because it was so late in the year. And didn't strike me as, as much or as tragic as it looks now, like, kind of hearing more directly from the people who knew him. Like, I, I feel like I kind of came into knowing him in that tail end of his life, which was kind of the worst of him, like the worst of his movies. And he wasn't on SNL anymore. And he had more of that image of like kind of a party guy. Like I watched a different documentary called Chris Farley, Anything for a Laugh. That's by Mm -hmm. the same filmmaker, but came out a couple years later. And there's an interview that he did after Beverly Hills Ninja, a radio interview. And there's video of it where he also looks very unhealthy. And the radio announcer is telling the story about these women that he's that were at the Beverly Hills Ninja screening that he saw. And they were like, oh, he's going to be dead soon. And like laughing about it. And it's just really sad and uncomfortable to see someone bring that up to him. And then and they, they go on to talk about like, how the women were, like, saying he's unhealthily overweight and stuff. And he's, like, right there on the radio, like, live having to respond to that. And I'm just like, well, of course you're going to have self-esteem problems if you're on the radio and that's what people are bringing up about you. I mean, it's just, like, I think he put off this image that, like, other people had permission to, like, make fun of this because he would do it himself. But, like, I don't think that helped him at all. Yeah, and I think, of course, part of what comes with this kind of discussion is talking about the opportunities that were missed and the roles in movies that Chris Farley didn't get a chance to make. Notoriously, Chris Farley had several more movie projects, not only in the planning, but some already well into production. He was cast as the lead voice actor in Shrek, and according to reports, there were mere days left of voiceover work left to be completed at the time that he died. And did any of that ever get released? Just a little bit of it has been released in the form of little bitty shorts that have kind of hand-drawn storyboards. Is it animatics? And his voice. I think there are some that have animatics as well. At first, they tried to get his brother, Kevin, to do that, but he just didn't feel like it was proper. The character of Shrek was even designed to look like Farley, and I've seen those sketches, and he looks very much like Chris Farley, like even to like the mm-hmm. kind of hair similar to his. Eventually, Shrek was entirely re-recorded and largely rewritten by Mike Myers, who gave the character his now iconic Scottish accent and, and changed the look. Chris Farley was set to play the lead role in The Cable Guy. Oh, huh. But Paramount's studio maneuvering forced Farley into doing Black Sheep and rushed that movie into production in order to complete Chris Farley's two-picture deal with Paramount. So literally, the only reason was that Paramount wanted their contract done. 
and forced him to give up that lead role in Cable Guy. Wow. Which apparently the version of the Cable Guy script that was around at the time that he helped get sold was a slightly sunnier character. But even still, I would say that Cable Guy was kind of, I think, a turning point in Jim Carrey's career and the kinds of roles that he was seen as being capable of performing. Yeah. One of the projects Farley was most personally excited about in his entire life was a biopic of Fatty Arbuckle. Hmm. Chris Farley personally pitched it to David Mamet to write over a dinner meeting. And David Mamet excitedly agreed to write this movie during their very first meeting. Farley was also slated to play the lead role of Ignatius Riley in A Confederacy of Dunces, an adaptation of the famous book that is still yet to be made into a movie and is considered cursed because so many actors slated to play that role, namely John Belushi, mm-hmm. John Candy, and Chris Farley, all died shortly before oh, those respective attempts at adapting the book. My closing thoughts are just like, I just want to express how much I loved Chris Farley's comedy then when I was a kid. And I still very deeply love like the energy, the open heartedness and the earnestness that kind of emanated out of every cell of Chris Farley's being. I find him relatable in so many ways, not all of them positive. And he was one of the first fat people I saw out in the world who was really adored and appreciated for who they were. Again, though, it makes me very sad that he was never able to appreciate that. And even knowing how much he was loved, he was never able to feel that love toward himself. And I really do think, especially now, seeing all his material all together and learning more about some of the roles that he was about to do, I really think that Chris Farley was on the verge of making the kind of career turn that other comedic performers like Jim Carrey did toward doing much more dramatic stories, much more dramatic movies, and bringing his kind of single-minded, manic dedication and commitment toward that. I think he would have made a tremendous dramatic actor. And I think that with even just like one or two of those movies, he could have shed the fat guy persona that he was so sick of. And I think he would have shed that persona very effectively. It just seems like literally kind of at the moment he died, he was really on the precipice of successfully making that transition. It's especially sad now seeing how close he was to being able to do that. Yeah, I would have liked to see him do something dramatic as well. I think there are glimmers of it, especially in Tommy Boy, because that's really the only one of the movies that gives him any potential for that. For, you know, reasons that may or may not have been in control of, he made some pretty bad movie choices (laughs) following Tommy Boy. And so I don't know if he would have just continued making those movies or if he would have actually, you know, made some of these better movies. But yeah, I previously had never never personally felt the kind of grief that other people feel for the loss of him because, you know, I wasn't connected to these movies and was like, okay, I'm not super sad that we don't have another Beverly Hills Ninja or Almost Heroes. But like seeing kind of the whole breadth of his career and the early parts and and the sort of optimism of and the promise that he brought, you know, kind of early on. Yeah, it definitely gave me like a much more like rounded out perspective of him. And I saw a lot more potential than I had previously seen in him for a different kind of career to emerge if he had, you know, lived on. Yeah, honestly, just watching all the SNL sketches again made me very sad that this person is not around to grow and do drama or do different types of comedy or how I don't know how old he would be today. What, like 50s? 
60s, early 60s. He may have grown out of crashing into tables and into a different kind of comedy. We just don't know. And that's sad. And it's sad that he, you know, lost his life not accepting himself and loving himself enough to to care for himself. But I will happily go back to the best of SNL sketches and rewatch it because I found it so funny. So, yeah, I, I mean, did too. I mean, he's still got a legacy. I don't think he's forgotten. Yeah, I don't think so either. And and I do think his kind of comedy and that commitment and open-heartedness, I think will absolutely make his comedy translate to younger people who see it. His comedy isn't as tied down to like pop cultural references necessarily as a lot of these other kind of SNL comedians are. And there is a kind of like almost human Looney Tune-ish character to the way that he throws himself into his comedy. And so, you know, like I, I do, like you, Becky, I, I hope people like watch his like SNL sketches and the best ofs because they really are top notch sketch comedy performing. And I think in a lot of cases writing too. And yeah, I would recommend Tommy Boy. Again, it's like not a super original movie, but I but I did just find it very enjoyable to watch and especially found him very enjoyable to watch. And I thought he did bring a lot of range to it. And that's all the fat guy in a little coat we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On the next installment of Saturday Night Leavers, Celluloid Man Children of 90s Cinema. I forgot that was our theme name. <laughs> it's time to enter Sandman. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to? (laughs) Yes. We're going to be talking about the career of Adam Sandler, his SNL sketches, Happy Mm -hmm. Gilmore, Billy Madison, and The Wedding Singer. He has quite a few movies, so we had to pick three. (laughs) So those are the three we're going to do. Sophie's Choice, really. (laughs) He was in that? (laughs) (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcast product. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that more people find the show. Find us on all the social medias at www.show and give us money at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can bring you more episodes of the show for free. I have been Seth. I'm Chris. And you guys remember when we did the episode about Chris Farley? (laughs) Yes, yes, Becky, I do remember that episode. We're we actually just, we just did that. We're just wrapping that up right now. Uh, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you was the bumblebee girl or living in a van down by the river. <laughs> he loved the bears and did good dance at Chippendales with Swayze when they replaced his coffee with Folgers. He went full on crazy. The sexiest cap girl and me loaf in the band. Without a man be no lunch lady in lunch lady land You know I'm thinking about Thinking about my boy Chris Farley